stop this tomato onslaught. Last night, tomatoes attacked Los Angeles. Boston. Seattle. Chicago. Even the mere mention of the word is sufficient to induce panic. Tomato. Junk food dinner, 6.59. We're back with three Stone Cold Cold Classics. Well, at least two. First, fruit goes on a killing spree in attack of the killer tomatoes. Next, two slackers tour the afterlife in Bill and Ted's bogus journey. Finally, zombies abound in cinema's golden age in Hollywood Mortuary. I got a full-on robot chubby. Welcome to Junk Food Dinner, episode 659. This is the podcast where each week we scour the internet, video stores, and cable television, searching for the most outrageous and interesting cult films. In Ohio, I am Kevin Moss, and I'm joined by my California co-host Parker Bowman in the 559 and Sean Byron in L.A., this week, we have a couple heavy hitters in a movie no one's ever heard of. We've got Attack of the Killer Tomatoes from 1978, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey from 1991, and Hollywood Mortuary from 1998. But first, gentlemen, how are you doing this week? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing all right over here. I mean, I've been better. As I revealed to you guys off air, I am currently embroiled in, in a battle with Apple support. Uh, they fucked up my, my phone order. Um, it was supposed to be delivered to me. They delivered it somewhere else, not me. So... Uh, fighting with these guys, and I, I got an update for you too. The fight is on. I mean, it, things have heated up within the past thirty seconds. Like, like right before we went to show, things were kind of cool between me and Apple. Now they're telling me this nonsense that they will look into it and get back to me within one to two days. What? 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 So, uh, if I seem a little bit less than present for the first few minutes of this uh, this podcast, it's probably because I'm sidebarring over here fighting with apple yeah that's unacceptable for a phone one to two days like when i i got a new phone uh i think like right before we went to vegas and like i just i i ordered it online and then i picked it up in store that day like it took 20 minutes what are they making you wait so long for i don't know it doesn't make any sense and you would think that they would know like do you know who i am i'm i'm a professional podcaster like i I got podcasts to not only record but listen to evaluate see what's new in the podcasting medium you know i'm trying to get prepared for this new show that bowman and i are going to be doing i can't do my market research without a phone Mm -hmm. not only that but you need an, an iphone to watch goddamn severance when it comes back it's absolutely (laughs) true they, I mean, they check you at the door. They, you know, they're scanning those iPhones. If if you don't have one, they're kicking you off the, the Apple streaming service, I'm pretty sure. That is true. They say you're not allowed to find out uh, the mysteries of this surreal science fiction show with great actors in it. You can't do it if you don't have an iPhone. I'm no, not allowed to watch season two. Yeah, no scary numbers for you, just regular numbers. <laughs> Very bland numbers for now on. Anyways, that's that's my life in a nutshell, Kevin Moss. Fighting with Apple, scheming on this new podcast with Bowman. Gotcha. 
All right. Well, cool. What about you, Bowman? How's your week been? Oh, it's been a lot of fun. I, uh, I took your advice, Kevin. Yeah. You, uh, a while back, you hipped me to the rough and rowdy fights. Oh yes. (laughs) (laughs) And I apologize. It may have ruined your life. It it may have, but it's also in the meantime, uh, it's brought me immense joy. They had a a pay-per-view on Friday that I had to watch. Uh, so I watched well, it. I watched all these Okies from West Virginia beat each other up. Yeah. For those of you who don't know, Rough and Rowdy is a boxing league. And, and I put that in quotation marks. Of <laughs> They let, just let amateurs box. And by amateurs, I mean literally people that have never boxed before. And <laughs> it, it really shows. So it's like the sloppiest boxing you've ever seen. But it's also very entertaining because they get some real characters, as you can imagine, guys that are willing to get into a boxing ring with no formal training. Uh, and it, it, it feels kind of sleazy. You know what I mean? Like on one hand, it feels kind of exploitative. Um, and I think, I think the guys from barstool sports are involved, which is an organization that I don't particularly support. So I, I can't wholly endorse this, this endeavor, but during the pandemic, I, I would be lying if I didn't say I watched a lot of fights. Cause a lot of times it'll be just like construction worker versus hillbilly. And then like, in like a WWE type fashion, they'll try to gin up some sort of like fake beef between the two. Like he was <laughs> saying, you're an idiot back behind, you know, in, in, in the locker room. And they're like, Oh man, I'm going to kill him. So if you like hillbilly is boxing, very sloppily rough and rowdy. A lot. It's a lot on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. I love the stories. I love when they talk shit, uh, to each other. Like one on this one, uh, like these guys were talking shit and then throughout the course of talking shit, one of them revealed that he was a cop and then it like made the other one just elated. He was so happy that he was going to get to beat up a cop. It was one, <laughs> <laughs> it was very delightful. Yeah. And uh, yeah, my new favorite boxer is this guy called the fighting governor. I guess he's running for governor in West Virginia, but he also <laughs> likes to box people. <laughs> it's just Makes very sense. fun. Yeah, he uh, like in, like after the fight, they asked him, you know, like uh, why he would be a good governor, and he went into his like big spiel. But he was like sweaty and bloody and out of breath, and it was very funny. <laughs> yeah, and like, if you're you gotta- a, if you're an actual boxing fan, it'll drive you nuts because these people have zero technique, zero form, zero skill. It's basically just who gets tired first and gets punched <laughs> in the head hardest. <laughs> That is true. Yeah. At one point, the announcers referred to uh, a particularly sloppy match as not aesthetically pleasing. (laughs) Well, let's be fair, Kevin Moss. There is some skill involved with finding that right level of inebriated where you can still throw a punch, but can also take a bunch, you know? Sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the perfect balance that all these fighters uh, try to get to. Also, to paint a picture, there's one match I watched where a guy came straight from his job at the coal mine and boxed <laughs> in his work clothing. Yeah, there's a guy. Um, he boxed on this, although he did what I'm about to talk about, like at a different fight, like months ago. But he was a guy who used to be in jail. So for his first fight, he came out like in his jail outfit. Like, I guess you get to keep <laughs> your jail outfit when you leave jail and or prison or whatever. So he came out with like the orange jumpsuit. Oh, I didn't know you got to keep the suit. If I would have known that, I would have gone to jail years ago. <laughs> I know. They look cozy. But yeah, so you've been watching the bum fights. Yeah, it was delightful. It was the best $30 I've ever spent, I think. Well, you spent money on these? 
I got the pay-per-view. I had to oh watch it live. God. Wow. <laughs> wow. No, I just watched them on YouTube. I, I, I didn't exchange any cash. Yeah. Someone's got the t-shirts. I should get the t-shirt, but yeah, they, I think they put them all, like all the matches up on YouTube after like a certain amount of time to, to get you hyped up for the next pay-per-view. But, uh, <laughs> but I, I mean, it was three hours of people just punching, punching the shit out of each other. Like that's well worth it. I, it was like, I was either going to, uh, watch the rough and rowdy or go see the new M night Shyamalan movie. And that would have been like twice as much with popcorn and everything and probably not have been as good and half the time, half the entertainment, uh, in terms of minutes. So. I got, uh, I got a good night out of it. All right. Well, fair enough. <laughs> now, when all of the cinemas close and you just have hobos fighting in the street, we'll know who to blame. It's you. <laughs> <laughs> all the movie theaters are going to get repurposed into boxing arenas for hobos. <laughs> yeah. If we're lucky. I'm into it. I think that's the best be case scenario. Mm-hmm. Well, very nice. Well, I did get out to the cinema this week. Uh, again, Ooh. unfortunately, I can't report on any new movies that are out. And the fact that I saw 1960s French new wave film Shoot the Piano Player on the big screen. You know, the classic Francois Truffaut film. But unfortunately, no hobos boxed in that. But well, it was good. I don't I don't know why you would even go see that then if there's no hobos boxing in it. <laughs> Did a piano player at least get shot? Uh, no, but... Oh my god, the French! They, it's so tricky with these titles! <laughs> well, it's not completely out of left field. I mean, it does focus on a piano player that is being chased by gangsters, and they want to shoot him, they just don't succeed. Okay, okay, alright. Well, thanks for spoiling it, Kevin Moss. Jesus well. Christ, I was gonna get around to this. <laughs> Well, was it good, like, though? It was very good. And in fact, uh, I would highly recommend it uh, if you've never seen it before. I hadn't seen it. It was the first time I saw it. Um, and yeah, I was was very impressed. It's, you know, like a lot of the French New Wave, the the storyline is just kind of the, the frame, more or less. It's more a story of, uh, you know, relationships and uh, uh, relationships with men and women, relationships with your family. And uh, it's, it's very good, very well acted, and uh, there's boobs in it for a 1960s oh. French movie. Wow! Okay, you know, that's exciting. Pretty early, yeah, yeah. I was just gonna say, there's a really hot uh, French prostitute in it that shows her boobs, and wow. I was like, man, if this is what prostitutes look like in 1960s France, get me a, a time machine and a plane ticket. Ooh la la! Yeah, anytime you see boobs in a movie like pre '68, it's always like a a real nice surprise. I, I was watching a actually speaking French. I was watching a, a Elaine Delon thriller, The Swimming Pool, this past yeah. week, and there was a bunch of tits in that. And I, I think it's like '67 or something. And I was like, wow, I didn't didn't expect all these tits. I love that stuff, and by that stuff, I mean French tits. Right. <laughs> Uh, if you have the Criterion channel, it is currently streaming on there. If you don't have a, a theater that's playing it <laughs> for some reason. Oh, shoot, the piano player? Yes. Yeah, yeah. maybe I will stream that. I remember we watched that Elevator to the Gallows last uh -huh. year that was kind of uh, like a noir thing from France. Maybe it's kind of similar to that. Yeah, I mean, this definitely is, I would I feel like it's inspired by 40s film noir movies, so... Yeah, I think cool. you dig it. Nice. 
Well, very cool. You want to see what kind of French uh, hobo fights the people out there in Junk for Dinnerland have been watching this week in this week's segment of Junk Mail? Of course. Yeah. We'll hook it up, Bowman. Who do we got on the line first? Uh, first, well, we got two guys that we, we know and love. Uh, here is the first one. Live from New York, it's Mr. Brian. Currently listening to episode 658, heard Sean Byron mention my name. Uh, he wanted to know if I was concerned about the uh, cat situation or any of the other listeners. Uh, we are all concerned, Mr. Sean Byron. Uh, what you're doing is a wonderful thing. And uh, I think you should keep that cat. It was uh, meant to be, meant to come into your life. You um, basically took an animal that was probably going to die and brought it back to life. So, and from seeing the pictures on Discord, um, it looks full of love for you, Sean Byron. So, yeah, keep that cat. Um, worst case scenario, somebody else mentioned uh, if you have to foster the cat before somebody can adopt it, do that. But uh, I think you should keep it. And uh, my other question for Sean Byron is, uh, uh, how is training going for your Money in the Bank, Money in the Bank match that's coming up in July? Is uh, is that going okay? Uh, who are you going to wrestle off against? And is uh, Parker going to be your ringside manager when I watch this in July on uh, Peacock Plus? So, uh, that's about it for me, Mr. Parker. Mr. Moss. Mr. Brian, hope all is well. Thanks for taking my call. Love the show. Uh, thank you, Mr. Brian, for calling in, as always, and thank you for being a longtime listener and friend of the show. Uh, yeah, Sean, you got any updates on... Has, has he given this cat a name? Did he have a name? He had a name, yeah. I mean, we've been calling him Sunday since birth. Him and his sister, Oscar, were both born on, you could probably guess it, Oscar Sunday uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and so we gave those names. Maybe it would have made more sense to name the male Oscar, but you know, whatever. I don't know. The the white one looked like a Sunday to me. Um, he's doing all right, you know. Like um, physically, like like the all the wounds are are good. You know, they've all sealed up. You know, they seem to be healing pretty good. His hair is growing back, which is nice. But his mood has been like not that great. He seems like real depressed. We're we're kind of having a hard time getting him to leave his little cubby hole like he's been kind of sheltering in place underneath our sink in our bathroom and we leave the door open like since he stopped bleeding we've been leaving the door open but uh he doesn't really leave the bathroom on his own and we can kind of call him out and sometimes he'll come out and play with us like he likes to sit on our laps and he's a real sweet cat like loves people but he yeah he's just real depressed it seems like because he's not not really engaging that much and so that's that's been the challenge lately and i mean if, if it was just that if he's just kind of a downbeat cat that would be fine but we're starting to worry about his weight that he's there it seems like there's a lot of muscle loss so we're trying to get him moving around so that he can build up you know some muscle but uh I, we love the guy i mean we're, we're 
we're committed to making him happy. So I can't guarantee that that's going to be living with me forever, but you know, he's, he's making the decisions and whatever he chooses, you know, we're, we're trying to be supportive of, of this little guy. Is it possible he's depressed over your whole phone situation? It could be. It could. Be. He's just <laughs> frustrated that I'm not an Android customer already. You know, yeah. he's, he's sick of seeing the wrong colored text messages come through. You know, those little bubbles are blue instead of green or whatever. Yeah. Well, hopefully he's uh, on his way to recovery. Hopefully he's gets a little bit better pep in his step, and yeah, hopefully guys uh, can can be a family again. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't know, is this a joke that I'm not in on this money in the bank thing? I mean, I guess it's some wrestling reference, but what's happening well, here? Fill me not, in. It won't be a joke, Kevin Moss, when I get a shot at the world title, when I win this match, when I get that briefcase off the top of the ladder, that's mm-hmm. not going to be a joke. Um, so, yeah, I mean, am I prepared? I don't think you can ever be fully prepared for the insanity of a, of a ladder match let alone a money in the bank ladder match. Um, so no, I'm, like, I'm, what, I'm probably this, unprepared, but I, I'm out of the loop here and I'm feeling, where did this start? Where, where, where are we talking? What are we talking about? Uh, it, it started in junior high school. You know, I, I was known as <laughs> flying Byron back then. And then it was Lord Byron briefly. And then hardcore Byron for longer than I'm willing to admit, but I, I did have the hardcore belt. So it made sense at the time. And, uh, yeah, I mean, will this ladder ladder match be my swan song? Will I, you know, possibly do a, a plancha into the third row that was, you know, ill-timed? And before you know it, I'm, you know, I got a, a piece of chair in my brain. Maybe. Could happen. But I want that world belt, Kevin. I need it. I can taste it. Okay. Okay. As your drop <laughs> says. <laughs> Well, to answer your question, uh, it was just a joke that Mr. Mr. Brian made in the Discord uh, that Sean Byron would have to take place, um, or he would have to take part in this uh, Money in the Bank match, which I think is a great idea. And I'm not going to be his manager at ringside. I'm going to be the guy. I mean, spoiler alert. I'm going to be the guy who comes out at at a very uh, important moment in the match and knocks over one of Sean's opponents while he's trying to get the belt. That way Sean can win. That's going to be my role. Peekaboo, you fuck you. <laughs> Standing ringside like a nerd. I'm, I'm going to be integral to Sean's win. I, the, I mean, the truth is not to go too behind the scenes here and, and break kayfabe as it were. I mean, I tried to get Bowman as my valet. I just couldn't afford the contract, you know, so I could afford mm-hmm. a, a simple run in. You know what I hate with any match where there's a ladder in the middle of the ring and they got to climb either to get a belt or a, you know a briefcase full of money or, or whatever it is. Yeah, these sons of bitches. And again, I know this is for theatrics and for the drama, but they always climb the ladder so slowly. Yeah. It's like, my god, man, shimmy up that fucking thing. You're going up at like a snail space. They climb it a little too quickly and realize, oh shit, I'm going to be at the belt soon. I got to slow down here on this last step. I'll take it at (laughs) like half speed. You see that a lot. Yeah, it just totally ruins the illusion because it's like these guys, they make it seem like, you know, getting this belt or whatever is like the only thing they care about. And then all of a sudden they're, you know, they're fighting really hard and there's lots of tension. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, I got an open shot at that ladder. And then they like get on it and climb it like they're fucking 96 years old. And you're like, dude. Yeah. 
My favorite gimmick, though, is when somebody gets hands on that belt, but then the ladder is removed and they're they're hanging from that belt. That belt oh, that yeah. they so desperately wanted to get off the hook. Now that's all that, that's between them and the ground. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's fun. Ladders are fun, but, you know, sell it a little bit better when you're trying to climb that ladder. If you could only have one, Kevin Moss, would it be tables, ladders, or chairs? That's a great question. Um, And I'm saying as a spectator. I mean, obviously, for offensive maneuvering, you want that chair. Yeah. Well, I mean, they each offer their own, you know, unique, you know, uh, dynamics. Ladders, obviously, that means some high-flying action is going to happen. You don't introduce a ladder without somebody climbing to the fucking top of it and flying off of it. Uh, tables though, obviously, you know, someone's going to go through that mofo and with chairs, like I said, someone's going to get hit with it. So all outcomes are great, regardless of which foreign object is introduced. Uh, but I, I got to go with ladder only because, I mean, as much as I love tables and I love seeing a dude go through a table and a solid folding chair to the back, nothing finer, but, uh, especially when it's a real tall ladder, uh, and you know, there's especially you know it doesn't happen a lot but when they're actually like fighting on the ladder oh yeah or somebody gets you know fucking thrown off the ladder that's thrilling i I love as a luchaman i love high flying action and that uh that that also goes for the the props it makes me think of maybe the best spot in pro wrestling history the iwa king of the death match where mick foley gets bumped off the ladder by terry funk and then falls into the barbed wire from 10 feet or whatever you can't mm-hmm. do that with a chair it wouldn't look cool if you just fell off a two-foot chair or whatever you know all right it's true that would be a real bummer if that was the end of your match <laughs> just falling off a <laughs> yeah chair yeah these new ladders though feel like they're like real flimsy. You guys notice they got these aluminum foil ladders now that just bend in half at a at a whim. Yeah. Uh-oh. Well, they're using them like tables. They're like they're trying to cut back, and they're only giving us the one thing, and it's just ladders. Like they're using them as ladders, and then they're also using them as tables. It's crazy. Just give us. They tables. do this thing. You know, they'll set it up in in the corner. They you know they wedge the ladder in between the ropes, and then they do the you know they'll whip the guy into it. And these say like they just like f- like form factor onto the guy's back immediately, where it's like, what is this made out of? I don't know. It's like foil wrapping for a candy bar or something, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, this ain't virtual pro, so let's move on. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Hey guys, it's your old buddy Kyle from Kentucky. I just wanted to tell you a story about, uh, I don't know how many years ago has it been, but 18 years ago, I, uh, my son's 14, so yeah, it was 18 years ago. I got my third DUI in Ohio. I live in Kentucky. I've never had a fucking DUI in Kentucky. My DUIs are always in Ohio. But 
I did six months in fucking jail in Iron, Ohio. Yeah, you probably never <laughs> heard of it, but it's, it's a fucking shithole. Just, I swear to you, it's the stinkingest place. Like, you couldn't... A landfill would smell way better than what this place smelled like. It smelled like just pure ass. <laughs> like body odor and ass. That was the worst. But I spent six months in there years ago. Oh, yeah, I was uh, drunk driving. I had a girl in the car with me one time. This was years ago. I ain't, I ain't got no trouble in a lot of years. Probably about 12, 15 years. But, uh... I had a I had a red truck and it was fast as fuck and we was fucking just getting hell. We was we was going going after it. And she had a pill in her hand, that old girl she was sitting beside me. She's gonna give me some pussy. And uh Well here we ended up rolling that truck that night. Rolling I mean like completely wrecking it and fucking doing all kinda of, but she held that fucking pill in her right hand, held it up above her head and she didn't lose it till we wrecked. Till we've done. <laughs> it didn't hurt her and I fucking broke my leg. Shit, it was it was awful. But uh you guys I love you. Uh <laughs> thank you, Kyle. Hey, guys. For calling in. Uh well I'm sorry to hear I mean I I, I realized this was a while ago, so but I, I'm sorry to hear of, of your auto mishaps and I, I didn't hear what town you mentioned in Ohio, but I apologize to the residents of that town for Kyle's comments. I'm sure it's a lovely place. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, we don't tolerate the, uh, drunk driving here in Ohio. I, mean, I might fly in Kentucky, but up here, no. No good. But no, I, I hear you, man. I mean, uh, yeah, it sounds like you guys were uh, getting pretty loose, getting pretty wild. And, uh, you know, sometimes these things happen. But I'm glad nobody got hurt besides your leg. And, uh, you know, it sounds like you had to do some time. But, you know, those things happen. And it sounds like you're a better man for it. Seems like you've learned the error of your ways. And uh, now you got a good story to tell. So, you know, it all worked out in the end. So, glad and to I, hear that. I, I would wager to bet that he came out of of lockup, you know, a, a hardened man. You know, if we've learned anything from Dominic Mysterio on Monday Night Raw, you know, doing some <laughs> hard time will do this to a man. Absolutely. Well, very nice. Well, if you'd like to be like Kyle and the rest of the JFD crew, let your voice be heard by giving us a call on the Junk Food Dinner voicemail line at 347-746-JUNK. That's 347-746-5865. Or you can send us an email at jfdpodcast at gmail.com. But I'll be honest with you, we hardly ever read those. Let your voice be heard and hit us up on the voicemail line. All right. That being said, let's get into some nerd news. Global resources of junk food dinner worldwide. It's time for Nerd News. The first piece of nerd news that I have some sad nerd news, and that is uh, shortly after we recorded the podcast last week. So this is kind of old news by now, but I I would be remiss if I didn't mention it. And that is that Rico Browning, uh, the man who was in the gill suit in Creature from the Black Lagoon, passed away at the age of 93, making him the last and final person to play a universal monster to pass on into the great beyond. So now there are no living actors who portrayed universal monsters left on this earth, unfortunately. Uh, But Rico Browning, 
uh, a real class act from everything I've heard. He was a staple at monster and horror conventions. And from what I understand was very uh, affable and loved talking and, uh, uh, you know, communicating with fans and signing autographs. He was really proud of his work as the creature from the black lagoon, as he appeared in the suit in all three creature from the black lagoon movies. Uh, he was the one in the water. Uh, he got the job because he was a kind of a swimmer and a kind of underwater guy. And he continued that underwater theme throughout his career. He helped shoot under, uh, underwater scenes uh, for some James Bond movies in the sixties. He also uh, co-created wrote and directed uh, several episodes of the TV show Flipper, and then helped bring that uh, to the big screen as well. Uh, he also directed a little film that we watched on this show several years ago, the cult classic Mr. No Legs. So uh, sometimes he, he got out of the water to exploit the handicapped, uh, but in a very fun way. Uh, but again, most fans will know him in fact, as the Gill Man in the underwater scenes from the three Creature from the Black Lagoon movies. Uh, he had been sick for a while. I, I remember uh, several months ago uh, seeing tweets uh, from his official Twitter page, uh, either, I think, from his wife or from a family member saying, hey, you know, R uh, Rico's getting sick. Please send, uh, you know, well wishes. He loves hearing from fans. And I guess he had been, you know, kind of knocking on death's door for the better part of the last year and finally uh, died at the age of 93 but hell of a run hell of a guy and again uh you know he was the creature from the goddamn black lagoon so what else is there to say uh but r.i.p rico browning uh, you will be missed thank you for <laughs> your dedication to the craft and uh yeah we'll see you in the big lagoon in the sky uh, but did you guys hear about the passing of Rico Browning and any thoughts on the creature flipper or Mr. No legs? Well, well, I'm clearly, this is sad. I like those. I like that creature. But now when you say that no more universal monster actors are left, you're not including, of course, Tom Cruise who played the titular mummy in the mummy. I mean, that was a beloved universal monster movie. And if you ask me, Sort of the cornerstone of the dark universe, that movie. Absolutely. The flagship, really. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> did you see that movie? I did. It was terrible. It's terrible. pretty bad, yeah. So bad. So bad. I saw it in theaters. What was I thinking? Oh, uh, what were you thinking? That's I oh. Oh. Wretched. Wretched film. Um Yeah, yeah, this is a bummer. This guy rules, so uh, it's truly the end of an era with him gone. Indeed. Well, here's news about the beginning of an era. Uh, the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie, which is coming out uh, here this year, a um, couple months, few months. The beginning of an era of a 40-year-old franchise. <laughs> the beginning of a new era. <laughs> <laughs> A new golden age, some might say. Um, this is Seth Rogen produced, and they've announced... Um, Are you talking about eternal teenager Seth Rogen? Eternal teenager. Everybody knows that that 50-year-old man is an eternal teenager. That's how his name is credited in this trailer, which is... Yeah. yeah that's cute. <laughs> uh, it comes out in August, August 4th. 
Um, they've announced a lot of the cast members, not all the cast members, I don't think. Uh, it seems like maybe they're hiding some, or perhaps Shredder's not in this movie. Um, and they launched the trailer. Uh, some of these cast members are, um, let's see, a bunch of people you've never heard of as the Turtles, which I was curious about when I saw that, but it is explained in the trailer. They're young kids. Um, let's see, we've oh, got yeah. Rose, Rose Byrne as Insidious. Uh, Rose Byrne from Insidious as Leatherhead, um, which is a strange choice. Hannibal Burris as Genghis Frog. John Cena as Rocksteady. Um, Ice Cube as Superfly, which is not a real Turtles character, I don't think. Maybe it is. Um, Post Malone as Ray Filet. Paul Rudd as Mondo Gecko. Uh, and Seth Rogen as Bebop. Um, and Jackie Chan as Splinter. Yeah, um, that's the big one. Oh, that is the big one. What we all love about Jackie Chan is his speaking voice. Well, and what we all love about Splinter is his uh, being Japanese. So uh, <laughs> kind of an odd choice, <laughs> considering how Japanese Splinter is. Um, but all right, whatever, whatever. Um, but anyway, so this trailer, I don't know. I like the animation. They're clearly stealing from uh, that Spider-Man movie into the Spider-Verse. Well, um, isn't it done by the same team? Well, I, yeah, I was just going to say, I hope it is. I have not looked to see if that was the case. I hope it is because that they just took the entire style. So if it's from the same people, then thumbs up because uh, it's a cool art style. It's it's a weird art style, though, where like, you know, you sent this trailer earlier today, you know, via Facebook Messenger. And I opened it up in that app. And I don't know if you guys have this experience, but if I try to watch a YouTube video in the messenger app, I get like approximately four pixels in my video. Like it's just real low res. I got to switch over to the actual app to get it to work cleanly, but I'm watching it there in the messenger with, you know, minimal pixels. But at first I thought it was like stop motion because of how it looks like it looks very, like it is, I guess, 3d, but it's also kind of flat in a way. And it just looked very strange. And then I switched it over, you know, to the full pixels and I was like, okay, this is computer animated, I guess, but it, still looks very distinct. I, I, I never saw that yeah. Spider-Man thing. So I guess this is yeah. like that. It is. Yeah. Spider-Verse. That's a very good movie. And yeah, the, the arts like this, I guess like the director said that the idea behind it was that, yeah, it's like, I mean, it's like a low frame rate kind of thing, but like the idea is that each frame you get looks like a, like a comic panel or something. Cause yeah, you kind of, it's jumpy sort of, but it's still smooth. Like, it, yeah, it's very, interesting and weird kind of animation style, but, um, but I love it. I think it looks cool. So I might see this movie just based on that. Although, um, maybe not see it based on anything else in this. Cause it didn't really look all that great to me. Although I do like that the Ninja Turtles are like little kids in this. I think that's a really cool idea. I've, I don't think this ever, despite the fact that it's like the first thing in their name, the Ninja Turtles never really come off as teenage and, so I think that's an interesting way to take this, but um, I don't know. What do you guys think about this? I liked that visual style, you know, once I did get the pixels on it. Um, and that's, yeah, I mean, I feel like you, you know, it, it looks okay. It looks kind of interesting. Do I really need another Turtles in my life? Probably not, but I also probably would have said the same thing about Rescue Rangers and and that thing turned out pretty good. So if they do a good job in writing this, I could see it being fun because it, it looks cool. But 
mean, track record for these kind of revival things is, is usually pretty poor. So I'm not going to get my hopes up or anything. Yeah. I mean, I love the Ninja Turtles as a kid, but I think this movie is not for me. Um, I mean, I'm sure it's fine. It might be great, but it's, it's for children. Let the kids have this. This is theirs. Let's, I, I, I'm, I'm dreading hearing 40 year old dudes analyze, agonize over this fucking movie about, oh, they got this wrong, or this isn't right, or this isn't cool, or it's never, not as cool as this, or just leave it alone, dudes. Like, if you're not a kid, this isn't for you. Like, ask a kid if they like it. If the kids like it, great. Uh, but yeah, dude, I, I, the last thing I want to hear us include, and, and I'm not saying, I'm not blaming you for picking this news story, but I'm just, again, I know that the internet's just going to be full of nerds our age debating over this stupid movie, and it's like, it's a children's movie, guys. Like, who cares if it's good or bad? It's not for you. That's possible. I didn't hear. There wasn't a lot of chat about that. The Michael Bay movies, though, perhaps because uh, the first one was bad and no one watched the second one, which was actually very good. Um, yeah, I, I didn't see those. I didn't even see the 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 TMNT, the last computer animated one that came out like 20 years ago. That looked right. pr- that's pretty bad, though, visually. Those visually turtles had bad. weird limbs and stuff, you know? Yeah, it looks bad, but that movie's actually very good, and it's in continuity with the original live-action movies, which is interesting. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, again, here comes the my version of the grumpy 40-year-old dude, but it's like, as good as these CGI ones look, I mean, I, they're never going to be as cool as that live-action movie i mean that was that was peak cinema it's peak peak muppetry yeah you got jim henson awesome suits it's gritty it's like the comic book yeah you're just never gonna top that as far as i'm concerned well again that is true that is that might be coincidental the fact that i was fucking eight years old when i saw it uh so maybe if you're eight years old and you see this in the theater maybe you'll, you'll catch some of that same magic who knows yeah, and then in 30 years, they're going to be like, man, the CG these days is not as cool as that Spider-Man <laughs> CG that they used to use, you know? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of revivals of 40-ish year old properties, um, this time not made for children, uh, I got a nerd news. Evil Dead and Don't Breathe director Fede Alvarez uh, as you know, is writing and directing a brand new Alien movie, and we've got some casting news. Um, I think it was already announced earlier that actors Kaylee Spani, Isabella Merced, um, and maybe some others had joined, but this week we've learned... Wait, they, all my favorites? I know, well, get ready for four <laughs> more names you have definitely heard of. David Johnson, Archie Renault, Spike Fern, and Eileen Wu have also signed on according to The Hollywood Reporter. Uh, The project is described as an original standalone feature, which I guess that's kind of interesting, an original standalone feature. I'm not exactly sure what that means. Plot details are being kept in a cryo chamber. Oh, that's that's really cute. Uh, But as opposed to the other movies, which focused on adults in corporate, militaristic, and scientific roles, this now ninth installment of the franchise will focus on a group of young people. So maybe it is designed for kids now. Maybe they're taking the, uh, the stranger things approach with this. Um, 
I don't know. I, I love that first Alien. It's one of my favorite movies of all time. I still love the creatures, you know, like all the, the Giger designs are still top notch. And even in a bad movie, I think I can still have fun with those xenomorphs. But um, are you guys ready to party down a ninth time with these aliens? And do you have any confidence that Fede Alvarez has picked the right crew to, to helm this journey? Yeah, I don't know, man. Yeah, I'm like you. I love Alien. I love the design of those aliens. I love seeing the the aliens. I love seeing alien toys. I like the idea of it. But yeah, it's been a diminishing returns on those alien movies uh, ever since Alien 3. I mean, it's just been like everyone that comes out is just a little bit worse than the last one to the point where now it's just like, what are we even doing here, guys? Um but yeah, I mean, like you, I think there is potential there for a good Alien reboot. And certainly they've tried. I mean, they had that Danny McBride one a couple of years ago, or at this point, several years ago. And that left a lot of people flat. I mean, I, I think, I mean, I saw it at the theater. I thought it was okay. But, you know, it's not anything that I would ever need to return to. So I don't know. I, I haven't really, I mean, maybe I'll wait to see the first trailer on this before passing judgment. But yeah, as far as alien movies go, they've just gotten like you know gone so downhill at this point. It's like eh, I don't know how excited I can get about this. Yeah, um, I don't trust Fetty Alvarez. I think even if you were a a weirdo that liked that Evil Dead remake and liked um, the the blind people home don't invasion breathe. movie, I thought we don't all breathe. kind kind of liked Don't Breathe, didn't we? I, I thought it was fine. Yeah, I thought it was fine. I, I think it's yeah, it's fine. It's not great, but I think it's it's a reasonable film. The ending's kind of wacky. I don't like that ending. Maybe that's what why I'm sour on it. But yeah, I, I think it's okay. But even if you like those, since then he's done like a, just nonsense, like garbage movies. Um, like what? Um, he did that girl with the dragon tattoo part two, part two, like the remake of the remake that's not in continuity with the originals or the Fincher one. Okay. Um, and then he produced and like co-wrote that Texas Chainsaw movie that that I liked. Oh no! Oh no, Sean. To be clear, I did like that movie. So oh. maybe, yeah, maybe I'm maybe I am the weirdo that is now rooting for this movie to be good. Maybe this is for you then. Um, but either way, you, I mean, even with me not liking this guy, um, also Don't Breathe Two is really bad, and he only wrote that; he didn't direct it. But um, but you know. Even if it's given to somebody I don't like, at least it's not Ridley Scott. So, like, that's a cause <laughs> for celebration. <laughs> so, this was probably going to be pretty good. You should see that last duel movie that he did, Ridley Scott, just a couple of years ago. It was good. I think you would like I, it. I, I should. I mean, I'm sure, like, you know, I mean, he does like four movies a year. So, like, I'm sure that he's got some in there that's sprinkled in that I would like because I do like some of his stuff. But, uh, but that one's got like Ben Affleck in it, right? Yeah. Then I'll rate it three and a half stars on Letterboxd right now. I don't even need to see it. I like it. <laughs> That's a good movie. Uh, well, speaking of Texas Chainsaw, I did want to mention real quick, uh, coming out on UHD 4K this week is a new transfer of, of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, and in conjunction with it, they played it in theaters this week. I didn't go out and see it because, well, first of all, I'm like, we're a year away from the 50th anniversary, which would since it came out in 1974. So I have to imagine they're going to be doing 
more Texas Chainsaw stuff next year. Yeah. But they do have a new 4K scan of this movie, which is what they were, you know, what they were screening and what's on this new UHD 4K disc. But man, but I don't know. I think it's like an ongoing race between Evil Dead 2, Army of Darkness, and Texas Chainsaw. Like, what can release the most fucking versions of it? Because I feel like I, yeah. I, I, over the course of my life, I've owned probably six or seven different versions of Texas Chainsaw on VHS, DVD, and Blu-ray. So I don't know if I can upgrade until <laughs> I, I gotta I gotta give it some time before I can purchase another copy of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. You do also reach a point eventually with a movie that was shot for like five dollars, you know, in a hundred and twenty degree weather in Texas, you know, on sixteen millimeter film. There's only so much that these restorations can do. At a certain point, you're just seeing the same exact pixels. You know, They're, they've just been rescanned yeah. in higher def. But um, I applaud them. And, and to a certain point, like I think that 2K of Chainsaw, when that scan came out, it did kind of blow my mind. I'm like, wow, this looks a lot better than I, than I remember it looking. So maybe I'm talking out my ass. Maybe this 4K looks incredible. But I, I kind of doubt it for a movie that was made that cheap on 16, you know, back in the day. Like I said, 50-year anniversary right around the corner, so I'm sure there will be more Texas Chainsaw on the way. Uh, but yeah, I think that about wraps it up for the nerd news, so we are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to get into our first movie of the evening, and that is Attack of the Killer Tomatoes from 1978, so stick around. Ain't nothing in the world that I like better than bacon and lettuce and homegrown tomatoes. Up in the morning, out in the garden, get you a ripe one, don't get a hard one. Plant them in the spring, eat them in the summer. All winter without them's a culinary bummer. I forget all about the sweating and digging. Every time I go out and pick me a bit. Homegrown tomatoes, homegrown tomatoes. What'll I be without homegrown tomatoes? Only two things that money came by, and that's true love. Homegrown tomatoes. Well, you can go out to eat, and that's for sure. But it's nothing a homegrown tomato won't cure. Put them in a salad, put them in a stew. You can make your very own tomato. You can eat them with eggs, you can eat them with gravy Eat them with beans, pinto or navy Put them on the side, put them in the middle Put a homegrown tomato on a hot cake griddle Homegrown tomatoes, homegrown tomatoes What'll I be without homegrown tomatoes? Only two things that money can't buy And that's true love and homegrown tomatoes life I lead. Well, I'd feed Johnny tomato seed, cause I know what this country needs. It's homegrown tomatoes in every yard you see. When I die, don't bury me in a box in a cemetery. Out in the garden, be much better, and I could be pushing up homegrown tomatoes. Homegrown tomatoes, homegrown tomatoes, what life be without homegrown tomatoes? Only two things that money can't buy, and that's true love. Homegrown tomatoes, homegrown tomatoes, what'll life be without homegrown tomatoes? Only two things that money can't buy, and that's true love and homegrown tomatoes. 
Almost everyone has been affected in one way or another by this terrible tomato onslaught. Mrs. Williams, I understand your husband is missing. Yes, Do you he think is. he's dead? Well, I, I Will you miss him? Well, Will you marry again? <laughs> what if he's laying in a ditch somewhere like, with both his legs calling your name? You will have to find another man, you know. You're no spring chicken. Lives are, are shattered. The nation is in chaos. Death and destruction sweeps the country. Four Square Productions presents perhaps the funniest film ever made. Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Attack, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. You've never seen a film like it. This is the incredible story of the world's ultimate disaster. Vicious man-eating tomatoes grow to monstrous proportions. Faced with this unprecedented menace, the president calls upon Mason Dixon, special agent. Aided by his trusty sidekick, Dixon begins to unravel the terrifying mystery of the deadly tomatoes. Dixon is getting close, too close for someone or something. Who could it be? The girl reporter? The ad executive? The press secretary? Or does it go higher? Join Mason Dixon in a race against time as he battles to save the world from the threat of nature's perfect eating machine, the killer tomato. Ain't no time to make a fuss. Gotta get those tomatoes before they get us. The Killer Tomatoes. You've never seen anything like it. Welcome back to Junk Food Dinner. The first movie we're going to be taking a look at on the show tonight is Attack of the Killer Tomatoes from 1978. This is a movie that I would say is goaded, as those idiot kids say, as a classic in the film in the cult film universe and you know like let's say your local library was putting together an exhibit on cult films you know they'd throw in rocky horror picture show another movie we're doing this month uh attack of the killer tomatoes probably you know plan nine from outer space yeah you know the big ones maybe hollywood Uh, mortuary hollywood mortuary definitely for sure uh but uh you know it's a movie that uh, i feel like looms large like for example in Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, when she has her big screening, she shows Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. And it's been, you know, a favorite of cult film people, midnight movie folks, uh, for years. And, you know, I think for people our age, we kind of grew up with the Killer Tomatoes as an entity, thanks to the animated series that was on. And by virtue of that, then there were toys and video games and killer tomatoes were just a thing and there was return of the killer tomatoes in 1988 and then they had two other sequels after that that nobody gives a shit about and rightfully so but i wanted to talk about the original because i feel like it's one that maybe people know about but maybe not too many people have actually seen uh and you know just kind of want to talk about it and get your guys' thoughts because it's one that I like a lot, but I have a feeling that there are people that either go back to it after, you know, having a childhood with the, the cartoon and Return of the Killer Tomatoes, 
and maybe are a little underwhelmed. Um, but I still think it's uh, it's pretty great, and we'll talk about why. So if you don't know Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, it is what you would call a parody film, if you couldn't guess by the title. And it's kind of parodying you know, the when animals attack genre of movies that were very popular. I think some of the direct, uh, you know, sources of parody are things like the birds. In fact, the movie opens with a text scrawl that says that, you know, Alfred Hitchcock made the movie The Birds. People laughed. Then in real life, people got attacked by birds and then nobody laughed. <laughs> uh, and so I think it took that as kind of a jumping off point. Obviously, movies like Jaws were also an influence and just kind of uh, B-movies of the 1950s uh, where uh, police and government and army officials uh, try to take on a, you know, a some sort of foreign attacker uh, in the form of some sort of, you know, mutated or uh, in, in other way kind of messed with uh, science gone wrong. Some sort of a them, if it were. Indeed. Uh, so in this case, you know, they, they went for the, what what would be the most absurd. You know, they've already done birds and sharks attacking people. Uh, well, how about tomatoes? And so that's uh, what they did. And again, this is a, uh, it's a low-budget movie that had a budget of just $100,000, which even in 1978 standards was not a lot to work with. And it basically is the humor in this is kind of of the style of like a, a an airplane or a naked gun uh, or, you know, a freaked or a wet, hot American summer, you know, the real kind of obvious uh, kind of, you know, parody slash like just visual gag humor where things will be very silly. Jokes will be, you know, very upfront and it's certainly not subtle. And from a movie called Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, you would expect nothing less. So the movie starts off with a lady um, in her kitchen. Uh, she is attacked by a tomato <laughs> that comes out of her sink. Uh, the police investigate it and realize that she's not covered in blood. No, she's covered in tomato sauce. And we then find out that this is not an isolated inc- incident, but uh, tomatoes um, all over are attacking people. And they don't really particularly go into the whys. I think they talk about, you know, they were trying to grow a better tomato. So I guess we're supposed to infer that there was some sort of, you know, maybe some genetic modification going on with the the tomatoes. And as a result, they have become sentient and are now attacking people. Uh, I think one thing that disappoints people is the artwork on the front of the poster. And obviously in the cartoon, uh, the tomatoes have eyes and giant mouths and teeth and, you know, they're like chewing people and stuff. Not the case here. It, you know, these are actual tomatoes in a lot of cases uh, just being rolled at people or um, and in some cases they do get large. They do have giant tomatoes. But again, no faces, no mouths, no teeth, uh, just them being rolled towards people or, or, or pushed towards people. Um, so. And I think that in and of itself is kind of a funny gag, you know, just the cheapness and how stupid it is to have people getting attacked by, you know, non-anthropomorphic tomatoes. It's it's just funny. Uh, But so (laughs) the government starts to try to put a plan together to see what they need to do to combat these killer tomatoes. 
Uh, and one one of the gags on this that I find very funny is they meet in this very small meeting room. It's like the size of the closet and the table and chairs take up the the bulk of the room. So that everybody has to like climb over the table to get to their chair. And they're all squished together. And just that gag I always found very funny. And a lot of the humor like that uh, I find uh, amusing. Uh, there's also, um, you know, there's a Japanese delegate that all of his uh, voices, you know, all his dialogue is dubbed over very obviously, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, but they put a team together of weirdos uh, to try to combat these uh, tomatoes. And uh, that includes, um, oh God, now I forget the guy's name, but he's a guy who parachutes in and he he lands on top of the, this guy's car. And then for the rest of the movie, he never packs his parachute. He's just running with it, dragging behind him, uh, which makes for a funny visual. Like there's a chase scene where he's trying to chase down a would be assassin and his parachutes just dragging behind him the whole time. And then there's a scene later in the movie where his parachute gets caught in a door and he gets a car door and he gets dragged uh, for several miles. Uh, but yeah, they, they continue to find ways to try to kill the tomatoes and including uh, infiltrating them. That one of the guys is a master of disguise where he, um, you know, poses, he, he looks, he dressed like George Washington or Adolf Hitler uh, to prove his, his master of disguisery. Uh, but at one point he disguises himself as a tomato and uh, infiltrates the tomato camp, but he's quickly found out when he's eating a hot dog and asks them to pass the ketchup. He's found out as a poser. Uh, but yeah, eventually they find out that the tomatoes are, uh, they can be killed, uh, with the help of a little song called puberty love, uh, by a guy who's supposed to be like, I think like a Donny Osmond parody. And so they find out that this, this song will actually shrink the tomatoes. So they gather everybody into the stadium, crank out the song, lure the tomatoes there and hope it's enough for them to be able to squish these tomatoes. Um, again, low budget movie. One of the interesting things about this, one thing that everybody talks about in one of the opening scenes, uh, they have the police and everybody kind of, uh, you know, kind of rushing to the scene of, of one of these tomato attacks. And there's this like helicopter that, that flies in uh, and crashes and it looks very real because it is, in fact, real. That, that helicopter really does crash. Wasn't supposed to crash, but it sure as shit did. And they just rolled with it. They're like, well, fuck it. We'll just keep it in the movie because that looks awesome. And uh, I don't know how much it cost. And hopefully nobody was hurt. But uh, they were able to to keep that, that helicopter crash footage in and, and work it into the script, uh, which I liked. Did you guys uh, see on, on Wikipedia, they, they kind of detailed in, in technical detail, like why that helicopter crashed. And I, I thought it was kind of interesting, but they, they outlined basically, they made the mistake of hiring John Landis to direct that scene. <laughs> <laughs> not true. But yeah, not too dissimilar because like, yeah, the thing like spins out of control, the tail just starts spinning around and then it just fucking crashes sideways onto the ground. Um, yeah, it looks really like it looks scary. Like the whole time I was like, this is either the like the coolest stunt I've ever seen or 
this is an accident that they just kept. And then, yeah, afterwards I read on Wikipedia that they just kept the accident. So, but yeah, I mean, it does look cool. And it also does look accidental because it's not like really the focus of that scene. Like it's happening in the background. So that's also a, a clue that maybe this isn't an accident. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It looks very real. And, it, and, and indeed it was, um, but yeah, this this also features a lot of music in it. Uh, obviously, a lot of people know the theme song, Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, as it was then subsequently used in the sequel and then as the theme song for the animated show. So a lot of people know that, but then there's also some musical numbers. Uh, the Puberty Love, I just read this on Wikipedia, did not know this, was sung by a teenage Matt Cameron, drummer of Soundgarden and Pearl Jam. That's fucking wild to me. I did not know that. Who knew that he, uh, he was the voice behind Puberty Love? Next time you go to a Pearl Jam show, you got to shout that out as a request, Kevin Moss. <laughs> well, hopefully they'll play it. Yeah, they got to. Uh, but yeah, so again, this movie uh, didn't do well at the box office when it was initially uh, released. Um, I mean, it made its money back, but it was st- still very much a cult movie. It, it gained a lot of popularity in midnight showings, much like the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I think a lot of people later found out about it on home video. Um, and then, like I said, 10 years later, they made a sequel return of the return of the killer tomatoes, which is the one that I think a lot of people are more familiar with because it was a, um, a new world pictures release. It had a young George Clooney in it. And a lot of the characters, including like the John Aston mad scientist and things like that were then, uh, translated into the animated show, which I think, like I said, a lot of people our age are familiar with. And then, like I said, they made uh, Killer Tomatoes Strike Back in the nine, 1990 and Killer Tomatoes Eat France in 1991. I have not seen either of those two, and I don't think I'm really alone in that. I've heard pr- they're pretty bad. Um, but again, I think this first one is a, a really fun cult classic. It's a little dated by today's standards, obviously, being over uh, you know, f- 45 years old at this point. Um, but I still think it's a lot of fun. It has a lot of low budget charm and I think a lot of the jokes are still funny. Obviously there's some outdated stuff. Um, they use the F slur a couple times. There's some jokes at the expense of that Japanese guy that are a little groan inducing these days, but overall I I like the stupid humor of this and I think it's a lot of fun, but what do you guys think of attack of the killer tomatoes? Well, I think that the F slur in this movie is okay because they use it to to refer to tomatoes, and that's funny inherently. I think (laughs) (laughs) I think this movie gets a pass. Um, Yeah, you're right. I had never seen this movie before, Um, despite growing up knowing about tomatoes and watching the sequel. That is uh, very good, and kind of like in like I mean, this seemed like kind of omnipresent though. Like I feel like it was on TV a lot or like clips would be shown and other things a lot. Or, um, I mean, I think they show a lot of clips from this one in the sequel and maybe they even showed clips from this, like in the cartoon or something. Um, cause there are a lot of like moments from this that I've seen before. Um, but like as a kid, it kind of always seemed like whenever people would reference this movie, it was, um, and like, like they would be like, oh, have you seen those crazy B movies like Them and Plan 9 and Killer Tomatoes? And like, I feel like this movie gets lumped in with like, you know, so bad it's good movies kind of like, which is weird because it's a parody. Like, right. 
they would be like, you know, being like, oh, you know, like, have you seen those great slasher movies? Uh, you know, scary movie. You, you, know, <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. it's kind of odd. I think part of that is that it, it came out so close to the movies that it's parodying. Like, you know, it's making fun of Jaws just a few years after Jaws was in theaters. That I, I think that may be why people don't realize at first that this is, you know, commenting on those movies. You know, if it came out today, I think it would be obvious to anybody, you know, that this is a, a yuck em up. But, I, I, you know, I, I, I was also thinking about that watching this. And, like, why why do people treat these movies as, like, you know, so bad they're good when, I mean, the intent is to kind of lampoon these other movies. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. It's kind of, kind of an odd legacy it has. It's, uh, kind of gets lumped in with those movies, but yeah, it's definitely uh jokey. And I mean, you even get that in the credits, like there are advertisements in the credits, which I think is very funny advertisements for like a local supermarket or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah. Like which a, come up for a couple like they'll have like a, text scroll at the bottom of the screen advertising that fake furniture store. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. A furniture store. Yeah. Sunnyvale furniture, 173 main street, mm-hmm. uh, which is fun. And uh, the sequel does too. Like there's that scene in the sequel where like, there's just like a Pepsi logo or something in the corner for a whole scene. Um, and yeah, so like all that stuff's funny. The little room is like hilarious to me. I think that's like so insanely funny. Um, and then like, it kind of just like has like the one note for a while. Like once you get like some of the tomato attacks and stuff, it's like, they kind of just like rehash more tomato attacks, you know, um, and that kind of kind of wears thin a little bit. The jaw scene is also very good. I, I love the, like the crack team that they get to combat the tomatoes. Like you mentioned the parachute guy who has a sword. Uh, and then he popped up in the cartoon and, uh, like, I mean, it's just like, it's so funny that these are the guys they get to combat tomatoes, like a master of disguise, a scuba guy, like a swimmer, parachute guy. Like, it's just like such a funny, like collection of like experts. <laughs> yeah. An Olympic swimmer. And <laughs> she doesn't get a lot of, of a lot of screen time, but when she does, she's just sitting in the woods eating steroid cereal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like all that stuff is super good. Um, and I mean, I, yeah, I would kind of like more of those, more of those crack, uh, that, that crack team that they get. Um, there are some really good scenes where like in the middle where it's like a war zone and like, you're getting like, you know, scenes of just like, you know, these tomatoes rolling around and like stuff's on fire. And like, it's like, it's kind of reminiscent of like that opening scene from Dawn of the dead, but like with tomatoes and yeah. all that's. Yeah, like all that stuff is like really great. And it kind of made me wish that like that there was a version of this movie um, that just played everything super straight. Like that was like just like it's just tomatoes. And like that's the whole joke. It was sort of like what Quentin Depew does. That kind of rubber is actually the movie I'm describing right now, now that I think about it. Um, But yeah, like. I don't know. I mean, I like this and everything. I like it being jokey and silly, but like, I don't know. I feel like there's a, a version of this movie that can be very surreal and very funny where it's like just played super straight, but it's tomatoes attacking people. Um, Cause they kind of go there with like some of those scenes where it's like mayhem a little bit, a little bit. Um, so I like that stuff. But yeah. But you know, watching this, 
I definitely think The Return is the better movie. It's sillier. And maybe it's just me. You know, Maybe I just like 80s movies more than 70s movies. Maybe that's just like my aesthetic that I like. Maybe it's that I like that hunky star of the movie, John Astin. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, but I kind of like the sequel more. And so I don't know. So I liked this, but I wasn't over the moon for it. Um, it does make me want to watch those crappy parts three and four, though. I kind of need to see the whole franchise now. Um, and actually, there there may be a new one that I have to see. I don't know if you guys saw this on Wikipedia, but as of 2019, a remake of this movie has been shot. And do you guys know who the director of that is? I do not. Is it Fede Alvarez? Yeah. It's Fede Alvarez. God damn uh, no, it. it's... An even better director than Fede Alvarez, Dustin Ferguson, will be directing. Is that right? Lord. Is that true? That is 100% correct. Oddly Now, is this the reason you've been getting into this man's films? You were trying to get prepped for his Killer Tomato feature. Well, it should have been. I mean, at least that would have given me a legitimate reason other than I just love bad movies and love wasting my time. But Give you a um, chance right there. (laughs) Yeah, you have the exit right there, you know? Yeah, so and also I should point out coincidentally, on the Patreon, I did an audio commentary for a Dustin Ferguson movie over the weekend. So if you're a Patreon, you can go listen to me uh, just make fun of a man's movie that he put hard work into for a while. Uh, <laughs> you want to do that. But yeah, so so that's going to be coming out. Uh, his his return or his attack of the killer tomatoes, which seems weird. Like you would think that like a that like would be too big of a property for a guy at his budget level, but maybe not, I guess. I don't know. Um, maybe being big in the eighties doesn't necessarily mean you, you're not going to sell your, your license to some, someone with $5,000, but um, it, it definitely does seem that way though. I mean, granted like the roots of this franchise are clearly very small, but they have a good like point. A, that, that's a well, pun. Yeah, that's funny. Fact. Yeah, I guess so. But <laughs> they had a national TV show. You know what I mean? Like that. That should mean that at least a Fede Alvarez level talent gets involved. Yeah, you would think so. I mean, like, I mean, Arnold Schwarzenegger's in like the upcoming Toxic Avenger or whatever, or Peter Dinklage. Like, it's got real people involved. Um, and that's not. This movie's not too far away from that movie in terms of cultural uh, and commercial reach. Um, yeah, I think that's fair. But uh, yeah, so I don't know. I enjoyed this, but I wasn't, it's not my favorite of the Killer Tomatoes movies, but it's definitely worth watching. Yeah, uh, it's been a long time since I watched this one. I, I saw this back in the video store days, along with the uh, the George Clooney one. And I think maybe some of the later sequels, but if, if you quizzed me on what happened in them, I mean, outside of Killer Tomatoes attacking, I don't think I could tell you anything about it. Um, I don't think I ever saw the cartoon though, which is kind of strange, kind of wild. I, I wonder how I missed that if I was just tuned into some competing program at that time or, or whatever, because it would have appealed to me as a kid. I think though, I probably got into Killer Tomatoes a little bit after the cartoon was on. I'm guessing I, I don't have the years for the cartoon in front of me, but I'm, I'm guessing that probably, um, you know, this was out on videotape and also the, you know, the Clooney one, um, you know, the sequ- maybe some of the sequels. Anyways, it, it's been a long time since I've seen this. Um, but one thing that I've always appreciated about this movie 
is, you know, this is a film conceived and produced in San Diego. And in terms of San Diegan film productions, I'd say this is one of the San Diegiest. I don't know if you guys agree or disagree, but uh, it's got heavy San Diego vibes in a way that I enjoy. And uh, well, yeah, I feel even like- the San Diego Stadium, which, yeah. do you know anything about that stadium? I'm, I'm guessing that's long gone by now. I believe it's long gone by now. Um, I know that the Padres got a new stadium about 10-ish years ago. So, and it, I think it was a it was a baseball stadium, right at the end of this. So, um, believe that's gone. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it just it's kind of cool in a way where it's got that distinct kind of outside Hollywood feel, but it also kind of just looks like LA, anyways, because San Diego is just you know two hours down the road. But it's it's like just different enough, and and, and I do like that kind of um, uncanny valley of like it's an almost Hollywood picture. Um, one thing that I did forget about this movie though, watching it this time, I was, I was tickled with the, with delight looking at these funny credits that open up the movie. You know, I, I thought that they were very amusing. I, I liked the furniture store ads and I liked the, you know, the credits for key tomato wrangler and, and all that crap. I thought that was very funny. The helicopter crash that immediately follows it though, I think is a, a bit of a bummer, you know, in terms of a way to open your comedy movie. You know, I'm, I'm laughing at all these funny credits. I'm ready to settle in for some silly tomato action. And now I'm over here worrying if a, if a real life helicopter pilot got murdered, you know, in the production of this movie, you know, so for, you know, in service of my yuck ups, uh, you know, thankfully it seems like nobody got hurt according to Wikipedia, but yeah. you watch this and you're like, what, what's going on there? It's, it is very distracting. Um, one thing that, that I probably will always remember about this movie though, is, is as you mentioned, it does have an airplane esque kind of hankering for cramming in jokes, you know, and, and sometimes they're lame, you know, like there's a joke in this, um, between two military guys. One guy says, where'd you get that medal captain? And the other guy (laughs) says, oh, I won it in a sack race against the other squadron last, last week. And it's like, what is that even a joke? A sack race? Um, but sometimes the jokes work, you know, like there's that one bit where they're, they're turning on the radio because they like desperately need a news report from the radio to figure out, you know, where to go next or how to get to safety or whatever. And the radio just keeps giving them like the extended top of the hour station identification stuff, you know, over and over again, which I I thought that was pretty funny. And, um, I also laughed at the point where you get the, um, the undercover brother in his absurd giant tomato costume. I, I thought that was really fun. Um, probably this movie's like biggest weakness is the performances. And I think that, you know, part of the reason that low budget comedies generally are not as successful as like low budget horror movies is that comedy is so dependent on good performances from the actors. You know, I think, you know, if you're making a horror movie, you can maybe get away with a lot of things in terms of the edit or you throw some scary music under a scene and suddenly it seems scary but in a comedy, I mean, you can write funny lines all day long, but if the guy delivering the line isn't funny, it just kind of sits there on the page and, and doesn't really translate. And I think that does happen in this movie sometimes. Like, this movie could have really used a Leslie Nielsen to kind of ground it and, and you know, bring you through this, you know, with a good believable performance. Um, and we don't get that, but we do get um, funny lines here and there. I mean... It's probably no mistake that a lot of my favorite lines in this movie are 80 yard voiceover from off-screen characters. Like there's a dirt bike racer who has an 80 yard line that says, 
hey, dude, it's a funky little tomato, which I thought was just a <laughs> weird thing for this dirt bike racer to say, but it made me laugh at the time. Um, on the flip side, I, I did like that old guy who has like a song and dance routine. Yeah. You know, he, he's singing about how, he knows how sales work and, and, you know, he's such a good businessman and all this stuff. <clears throat> I thought that guy had a real fun energy. But then they cover his whole song and dance in like a really uninspired wide shot. And, you know, they don't cut to a close up. I don't think even once for the poor guy. So, um, you know, I thought that was kind of underwhelming. But I, I do like that they go the extra mile here to throw in 1950s style musical numbers, you know. And this is way before, you know, Little Shop of Horrors did it in the, in the 80s or uh, Earth Girls Are Easy would do it later. Um, I think that's a pretty ballsy maneuver for like a low budget movie like this, where you're like, there's so much stacked against you to make this movie. You know, you got no money. You don't know what you're doing. The premise is absurd. And then you're like, on top of that, I'm going to make it even more complicated for myself. I'm going to make this into a musical. And I think that's, you know, that's, that's pretty ballsy. And it, for the most part, works out pretty well. Yeah. Well, and you bring up a good point because I feel like this did kind of pave the way for things like, Little Shop of Horrors, the you know the off Broadway production and subsequent movie, and Earth Girls Are Easy, this like musical comedic spoof of fifties sci fi. I think this was an early, an early uh, example of that, and I think I love everything that it spawned. That it spawned, so I got to yeah, give props for that. And it's, I think it's two tastes that go well together because they are both kind of rooted in that kind of mid century filmmaking. Like there, there's a lot of 1950s musicals and there's a lot of 1950s, you know, low budget sci-fi movies in the day. They never came together, but what if they did, it, it would have been cool. And, and so I like the fact that we have these movies that kind of take those two different elements from 1950s cinema and, and put them together. And, and it, it works here, you know, and, and, and I think also the non-actor quality on occasion also works to their benefit. Like when they're, they're doing a lot of scenes in this with like newscasters and stuff. And I feel like in some movies, especially low budget movies, you get a guy in there, an actor to play a newscaster and they come off as an actor playing a newscaster, but they got some guys in here that either, I don't know, maybe just were like local San Diego newscasters. I don't know. Or probably were just like friends of the director with no acting experience, but they read as newsmen on, on camera. So it's, it's kind of good in, in that way. Um, so yeah, I mean, overall, while this is just kind of basically, a series of sketches, some of which are funnier than others. Um, I will always like this movie because, you know, I, I think that you can, even in the parts that are not that great, you can really feel that passion of like, these guys wanted to make a movie. They, they clearly loved fifties, you know, sci-fi horror movies and they wanted to pay tribute to that. And, and I, I think that kind of love comes through uh, while you're watching this. Um, I also love that the San Diego chicken makes an appearance in this movie. Speaking of yeah, it absolutely. being very San Diegan, uh, <laughs> in that crowd shot at the end, you know, everybody's stomping on tomatoes. You got the whole city's coming out to stomp on tomatoes. If you get the whole city to come out, you got to get that San Diego chicken to stomp on some tomatoes. And well, and they sure did. The thing I love about that too, is it's not everyone in the city. They make a specific point. They're like, we got to gather everybody up in the stadium. They're like, well, everybody's evacuated. The only people left here are weirdos. And they pay that off, and be, and I, I would have had to imagine they just told people to show up dressed as wacky as possible because it is great, especially in HD, to pause it and like look through that crowd. 
because there's so many weird things going on there. There's dudes in like Groucho glasses. There's people in weird wigs, weird clothing, just masks, like everything you can think of. They just told people to show up, look goofy as hell. And a lot of people took that assignment seriously. So that that's a great scene because the whole crowd is made up of, of weirdos. It's a, it's a lot of fun, but I mean, are any of these weirdos as weird as the guy that chooses to be the MLB's number one unofficial mascot? I mean, dude's not even getting a, <laughs> like a paycheck from the Padres. You know what I mean? He's wearing that all through the, the summer games, you know, just yeah. sweating his ass off just because he, he loves the costume so much, but the other I salute thing him. The other thing I was wondering during that crowd scene is then they all charge the tomatoes like you talked about. And we've got our boy with the parachute leading the charge. And I have to wonder how many times that parachute got stepped on and yanked him back during that scene. Because there had oh, to be yeah. a fine line where he was like, don't get too close to the parachute, but also run as fast as you can. And people are pretty close to that parachute. So I got to imagine there's some people that stepped on that parachute and yanked his ass back a few times. Probably. I mean, this is this is before we had CGI parachutes. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, pretty sure. But uh, it's it's a great scene. It's a great moment. Um, the very end stinger, too, that comes like after all that stuff that I guess I won't spoil that sets up a sequel that never happens, I don't think. Um, I thought oh, yeah. that was pretty funny, too. I, I like that very, very end stinger. I thought it was cool. So, well, yeah, we I mean, can, we can spoil it. I mean, well, okay. This is a fifty. It's the ca- the carrots. What you're referring to, right? That's right. Yeah, they imply yeah. that the carrots will be the next to take over, and, yeah. and the carrots seemed very excited about that. And it, <laughs> it's cute. Yeah, I laughed about it. Um, but yeah, this this was a blast to revisit. If you have not revisited in a while, I would say do so. And I feel like I need to go check out that cartoon next. Yeah, the cartoon was great, and like I said, it had video games, a toy line, Halloween costume. There's out there there's a vintage killer tomatoes like you know vacuum formed mask and plastic smock set that some poor bastard had to wear one halloween but god bless them uh but yeah and the visual aesthetic's great too i mean the cartoon was based you can tell a lot on the poster art of this original movie and it's a great poster it's a cartoonish like it looks like something straight out of mad magazine uh, and it's it's exactly what you want for a fucking Attack of the Killer Tomatoes movie. So I think a lot of people just saw that poster and were like, yeah, I'm seeing that movie. I know I would have. Um, but yeah, so great poster, fun movie. If you haven't seen it or haven't seen it in a while, check it out. But I think that wraps it up for Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. We are going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we are going to get into our second movie of the evening, and that is Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey from 1991. So stick around.
about to embark upon a most unprecedented expedition. Once they made history. I must see to it that you die. Now, they are history. Bill and Ted are dead. Welcome to hell. It's the Grim Reaper, dude. How's it hanging, Death? But they're having one hell of a time. This is not what I expected this place to look like at all. We got totally lied to by our album covers, man. Taking in the sights. Not bad, dude! We totally knew a guy got one of those in his bucket of chicken. Making new friends. Excuse us, dude, but is there any way we can get back? You may challenge me to a contest. J7. You have sunk my battleship. Best two out of three. What? Enjoying the family. No way! Invading the present. I totally possess my dad. Battling <laughs> the future. You metal, dude! Excuse us, but your shoes are untied. Can't believe we just mailed a death! And meeting their maker. Guy? Congratulations on Earth! Not to mention your other great planets. Mars, Jupiter, Uranus. It's the comeback of all time. Bill and Ted's bogus journey. It's a trip. Best of seven? Damn right! Ah, oh, dude! Left hand red. Ah, yeah! Bill and Ted's bogus journey. Welcome back to Junk Fod Schlitzy. The next movie on the show is Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. This is a movie from 1991. It's probably going to be hard to talk about because it's like so much. Uh, it belongs in my heart deeply. It's like part of the my DNA. So it's probably going to be a difficult movie to talk about. Um, you feel it in your guts, as it were. I do. I, <laughs> I do. Um, this is the sequel to Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, obviously. This is directed by Peter Hewitt, who I don't believe did the first one, and who has gone on to do just a bunch of garbage, which is weird because this movie does have uh, like an interesting visual style, um, more so than your average kind of like dopey comedy. Um, so it's weird that he didn't really have much of a, a good career afterwards. Um, and it's written by Chris Matheson and Ed Solomon, who did the other ones, um, and a bunch of weird stuff that is beloved, uh, like Mom and Dad Save the World and the Super Mario Brothers movies. Or now, movie. you're, you're telling me that you're not impressed by this director's um, work on the Garfield CG movie from 2004? <laughs> He did Garfield. He did like Home Alone 6. Uh, he did one other movie that probably most of us saw. At least I remember seeing Tom and Huck, that uh, the Mark Twain movie from 95 with, uh, who was the kid? Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Yeah, JTT. Yeah, JTT as he was known to the children. Yeah. yeah. He also did this movie that we should have done on the show for Fart Week, but somebody decided to do a movie that isn't about farts, and that's called... Thunderpants, a 2002 movie about a kid who becomes a spy because of his amazing ability to fart. But how many rotating restaurants are featured in it? Probably, Probably a lot. 
Really? Okay. Well, <laughs> sold yeah, me. I would guess anyway. I don't know, based on nothing. But, um, but anyway, so in this movie, Bill and Ted, who in the last movie we um, learn are two uh, metalhead slacker stoners, even though they never smoke weed or mention weed at all. But I mean, we can read between the lines. Um, they're, it's been foretold, not even foretold. I mean, guys come back from the future to tell them that they're the most important band in the world. So they have to stick together. Um, and so they do, they go on a wacky adventure. They stick together in this movie. It picks up a couple years later. They have not yet become the world's most important band. And they are in once again, in danger of being split apart because they're, they're sort of aimless in life. Uh, and at their lowest moment, uh, two robots from the future uh, come and kill them. And then they go uh, all across the afterlife um, to find a way back to defeat the evil robot Dems and win the battle of the bands. Um, I love that this the, <laughs> the stakes of this movie uh, that takes place in the past, in the future, in the afterlife, in heaven and hell. It's so that two guys can win the battle of the bands. I think that's just wonderful. <laughs> Those are the stakes. Uh, and then also, I mean, I guess by extension, the whole entire future, this peaceful utopian future that they create with their music. Um, this movie is wonderful. This movie is like, I was 10 years old when this came out, 10 or 11. And I had liked the first one. But then I saw this one in theaters and it was like, I, I got my mom to take me and my little brother. And it was just like, it was life changing. I mean, very much life changing. Like it was like somebody served me on a platter. Like, Hey, here's all the stuff that you think is funny in life. Like here's like two stupid guys. Um, here's a very silly grim reaper. Uh, and then like, and then beyond that, it's like, just so much weirdness in this movie. Like, like I said, there's time travel in it. There's aliens that go to heaven and hell. Uh, God and the devil are in this movie. There's robots, robots play bas- basketball with their own heads. Yeah. Uh, robots talk about getting erections from looking at hot girls. Um, like, it's just like all this weird stuff, you know? And it's like, this movie could have been like, it could have been so easy to just capitalize on the first one, make another time travel movie. Be like, oh, in the first one, everybody liked when, you know, like Socrates and Billy the Kid went to the mall. So let's just make another movie where Socrates and Billy the Kid go to Disney World or something like that and call it a day. And they don't do that. They do all this weird stuff. There's like, I mean, it's so imaginative and so, um, like, there's just so much love put into like everything in this movie, like, uh, and so much thought and like, it's, um, you know, like just throwing in all these like weird aspects and, and, and it all works in service of these two characters. I mean, like these guys, the whole movie is kind of about them, you know, facing, facing their fears, which they do so literally when they're in hell and they have to face monsters that uh, represent their fears. And then also kind of overcoming the bad qualities of themselves which is like their laziness. And that's obviously brought to us metaphorically and in the guise of the evil robots and stuff. So like even in the midst of this movie, which is about two stupid guys going on a stupid adventure, I think there's really smart stuff in here. Um, It's also really interesting visually. I think there's this really cool scene where after the 
they audition for the Battle of the Bands. They're leaving the auditorium and like the auditorium is just like black and white. And it sort of looks like, you know, like if you ever got like government cheese, like it's just like black and white and like (laughs) the most normal font, you know, and it's like, just looks so bland. The auditorium like looks like that. And like, just like little touches like that, I think are interesting. And then also in that scene, uh, the camera is like moving backwards while Bill and Ted walk forward away from the auditorium. And then the camera like moves into their van and then is like loaded into their van. And it's like, there's a lot of like just really cool shots like that throughout the movie where it's like most comedies have no visual style. Like that's, you know, like there's no point and you know putting visual style into like a normal dumb comedy you know like if you watch something like like this movie sort of like wayne's world like there's like nothing like that in wayne's world and there doesn't need to be um but the fact that they do that here like just makes the movie all all the better um and there's a lot of stuff like that you know um i think they put a lot of attention into you know a lot of the set pieces and stuff um also i love this movie because within the span of a couple of years, two movies came out that uh, like lampooned the idea of Ingmar Bergman's Grim Reaper. Um, This and Last Action Hero. So when I was like 11, I had no idea like, you know, anything about, what's that movie? Like The Seventh Seal or whatever. Yeah. 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 Like, but like, I had no idea that that was even a movie, but I was very familiar with, (laughs) with it once i did find out because those two like because these two uh grim reapers and these two movies that i loved as a kid uh you know riffed on it um and then i just think these two guys bill and ted are just so cute like when they propose to their girlfriends and give them like little like quarter machine rings i think that's adorable are Um, they still cute when they come back with weird facial hair at the very end from the future is that cute that's still cute Okay, it is kind of cute. They got babies with them. That's cute. Um, uh, like I, you know, I like how gen- genuinely like happy they are to meet Station and to party with him. Uh, I like that they befriend Death. And uh, I don't know. I love everything about this movie. I, like every line is so funny, and everything about these dudes is like. When I was eleven, I was like, I just want to grow up and be these guys. I just love <laughs> them so much. And I still feel that way, I guess, to a certain degree. Um, but what do you guys think about Bill and Ted's bogus journey? The best of the Bill and Ted movies. Well, I think I am kind of jealous of, of one Parker Bowman because I, I never got a chance to see either of these movies in the theaters. I mean, I'm, I'm sure that I got a chance, but I, I just, I didn't, didn't seize it. Uh, never did. Uh, you know, both of these movies were, uh, you know, big time uh, video rentals for me, rented them. Quite a lot. And I think I, 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 I'm trying to remember, like, did I see the first one and then have a wait of a year or two where I was waiting for this? Or I, I might have came to Bill and Ted at, at a time where both of these were out on video. But um, certainly, you know, in, in my early um, teenage years, pre-teenage years, loved Bill and Ted, loved both these movies. I think probably as a kid, I, I might have loved them on semi-equal f- footing, but I, I do remember like kind of the the general consensus around town was like, oh, Bogus Journey is not as good. And and I never understood that. Like I, for me, this had so many fun elements, you know? And, and so um, I had not gone back to rewatch this one 
um, until about six months ago. Um, I, I actually had a few false starts over, over the past few years where I was like trying to get my wife into Bill and Ted. And so I would play the first movie and we would get some percentage of the way through it. And then she was done with it. And I never got around to, you know, rewatching Bogus Journey in my adulthood until like six months ago. And when I did, I was like blown away by how much I still loved it. And, and uh, you know, I was a little bit trepidatious uh, when you picked it for the show this week, because, you know, having just watched it six months ago, I was a little bit concerned that I'm, you know, I might be a little bit burned out on it, that it might be kind of a slog to get through it. And I don't want to do that to Bill and Ted. I don't, you know, I don't think that they deserve that, you know? Um, happy to report that was not the case. I, I still very much enjoyed uh, my time with this movie, you know, even having seen it uh, so recently. Um, and, you know, there's a number of reasons that, that I think this movie is better than the original. You know, I think the jokes are funnier, you know, and I, I didn't write a bunch of them down, but uh, that one joke where the guy from Faith No More is now the founder <laughs> of a spiritual center, I thought was a funny joke. Um <laughs> Of course, you know, the visual design elements are way better, like you mentioned. I love the colorful future fashions that future people wear in this. Um, and I like that guitar that George Carlin uses as a grappling hook uh, <laughs> that kind of looks like it was designed by the same people that designed that future fashion. It's a very colorful gu guitar. Um, the robots look great, you know. Uh, the part early on where evil robot Bill and Ted pull their rubbery skin over their weird techno skeletons fucking rules. It was incredible. Then it's incredible. Now uh, I also love the good robot Bill and Ted's who are pretty bad robots, but they're, they're pretty great, you know, as characters. Um, and actually all the new characters in this are fun, you know, way cooler than Napoleon or any of those guys from the first movie. I mean, the, the first movie didn't even have Pam Greer. Uh, plus you got station in this yeah. who is fucking rad as hell. Like you, like you mentioned, you know, that giant floppy rubbery butt on station. It's probably among the greatest floppy rubbery butts in cinema, I would say. And I mean, for what it's worth, I, I have not yet seen the whale. So maybe I could be <laughs> corrected on that, but where I'm standing, I fucking love that dude's butt and death rules too. Uh, you know, and, and I love how he's jealous of how Bill and Ted are checking out stations, little, little took us, uh, you know, he's like, he's like, Hey, check out my butt up and working out too. I, I thought that was a fun little moment for him. I, I love everything in this. Well, I love that he notes that reaping burns a lot of calories. <laughs> yeah. And, and they, uh, Bill and Ted give each other a look of kind of like they don't buy it, which is a, a funny little moment, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, there's so much to love in this. I, I love everything about this. Um, except I don't love Primus at a battle of the bands. I mean, I, I guess <laughs> pre pork soda, it was kind of a cool booking for them, but I don't know. Um, that part is maybe not aged as well as the rest of it. Um, oh, well, I mean, it, it's, uh, it's whatever. I mean, it, it goes by within 20 seconds. I, I just, I don't care about Primus that much. Shelby um, Cobras is going to be so mad. He's going to turn this episode off in anger. That's fine. That's fine. Um, <laughs> The actors are good, though. I mean, like like Bill and Ted, uh, Alex and Keanu, I think they do a great job. You know, they got a lot of work in this. They, they got to play multiple versions of themselves, and I think they do an, a nice job at that. Alex Winter has to play his own grandmother in a scene. And oh, I yeah. That was great. The makeup is great. His performance is great. And the interior design of that, that weird nightmarish flashback scene is fucking awesome. They do, like, this Incredible. weird... 
yeah, it's it's like a German, you know, expressionistic, you know, kind of uh, Caligari esque, you know, weird angles and, and all this stuff. I, I thought that looked so cool. Um, oh, and just a quick location note: uh, that auditorium, the San Dimas Civic Auditorium, in this uh, is played by the Santa Monica Civic Auditorium. Uh, which is famous for being the place that I once saw a really cool cat show. Uh, you know, like one of those cat shows, kind of like that Westminster dog show sort of thing where they had cats going down these little runways and these old guys with these funny mustaches were judging the cats strides or whatever, you know, uh, that was a fun event that I went there once. I, I think it's gone now that building maybe, or it's going to be gone soon. Um, what else is in this? Oh, the Vasquez rocks are in this. Got to shout that out real quick. Uh, you see the Vasquez yeah. rocks on TV in that Gorn Star Trek episode that they're watching on TV. And then they drive right out to it uh, right after that. I, I thought that was a fun little, uh, fun little moment. And, you know, the fact that one of cinema's most memorable scenes probably ever, you know, like the, the Bill and Ted death scene at, at the Vasquez rocks was filmed there at those rocks, I don't know. It makes me even prouder to live within relative proximity of these giant slabs of stone. Uh, yeah. So overall, I, I love this, and I guess my only question is: of all the the expensive Super Seven mega priced ultra detailed toys that are on the market, why the hell can't we get a pair of the good robot Bill and Ted's? You know, with all their weird gears and and cables and stuff hanging out of them. That's what I want is, is one of those, but yeah, this, this fucking rules. Yeah, I completely agree. I did have a similar experience to Parker. I, I have seen the shit out of this movie. So I saw this movie in theaters. I, I didn't see the original excellent adventure in theaters. I was a little, I think I was a little too young to have caught that in theaters, but by the time this rolled around, yeah, I was definitely waiting online to see that. And yeah, loved it immediately. And then subsequently, they played it on cable all the time. Like I felt like there was, if you had HBO, like in the summer of, oh, I don't know what, 1993, maybe, it just played on a loop, it seemed like, over and over again. Then, when I was in college, Pizza Hut did a thing where if you ordered a movie, they'd give you a free DVD. And it was like literally just a DVD and a paper sleeve. But it was like you know, the early 2000s, so DVDs were still relatively novel at the time. I was like, fuck yeah, but you didn't know what you were going to get. And, I mean, they I think they only had, like, five options or whatever, but luck of the draw, I ended up with a Pizza Hut paper sleeve copy of Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey when I was a very poor college student that didn't have cable but did have a DVD player, so I watched that thing all the time. So I've probably seen this movie at least 50 times, if not more. And I love it. And so I, there was a couple years ago where I was like, I'm going to rewatch Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey because obviously I love it. I think it's great, but it, is it just nostalgia? I mean, obviously I saw it at like the perfect time when I was a kid and then I watched it a lot over and over again. So maybe I'm just conditioning myself to think that it's, it's so good because like you guys, I a hundred percent agree that it's better than the original. Um, and but yeah, it's like maybe nostalgia is, or circumstances clouding my my judgment of this movie. So I went back and watched both of them together with an open mind. And yeah, I still stand by my opinion. It's great. It's better than the original. It's fantastic. Um, for all the reasons you guys mentioned, um, 
you know, the, the visual style is incredible. I love the fact that, like you said, Parker, you know, they, they, they found that these two guys worked in the first movie. Like, we can put these guys in anything, and it works. We're having them to travel through time. We're having them, you know, meet, uh, you know, uh, Abe Lincoln and Napoleon. And uh, people like these guys. So I feel like with the second movie, they just got a blank check to be like, just do whatever you want. Like, these guys can be in any scenario, and it's still going to work. And they did, and it, and it turned out really well. Like you said, they just go all over the place. Um, the original title of this movie was supposed to be Bill and Ted Go to Hell, which while I love Bogus Journey, I feel like that's a way better title, and I wish they would have stuck with that. Um, but I guess they got mm-hmm. a little scared that the marketing might be hard with the word you know, Go to Hell in the name of the movie, which probably, looking back, they were right. But uh, I still think it's a better title than Bogus Journey, which is not a bad title, but especially after Excellent Adventure, but I still think Go to Hell is a better move, uh, better title. Um, but yeah, also, I think another reason why I love this is between, obviously, Bill and Ted, Alex Winter, and Keanu Reeves, and then you've got William Sadler as Death. Obviously, that's, you know, a big chunk of the cast of Freaked right there. So, you know, gotta love that. Uh, but yeah, the scenes in Hell where they're forced to, uh, you know, kind of face their own personal hell in the form of, uh, scary Easter bunnies and having to kiss a scary grandma and having to go to military school and all that stuff. And like you said, the interiors of hell just look so fucking awesome. Like that, that chunk alone is worth the price of admission, uh, just for the art design, the set decoration and just the visual style of it. It just looks amazing and it's just great. And like, yeah, I don't know how anybody could pan this when it came out. I, you know, how anyone could not see this and just see not see what it's like one of the greatest movies, uh, and I and I truly believe that it's endlessly entertaining, and for something so dumb like you know like you said it could, they could have easily just fucking uh, you know rested on their laurels, cashed a check, made a just a, a, a copy of the first one. But they don't. It's like so unique and it's so weird. And I, it's just such a cool movie because of it. Uh, there's really, I mean, nothing else like it. Uh, I do want to shout out another thing that really, um, again, I just was immersing myself in this world. I had the, the, the Marvel Comics adaptation of this movie that's done by Evan Dorkin. Excellent comic. I highly suggest it if you've never read it. Uh, really cool artwork. Um, and yeah, just really does a good job with it. So if you've never read that, check that out. Um, that's got that's got like all the stuff that they had to take out in the middle, where like they're yeah. fighting the Easter Bunny and Ted's grandma, like on the way to the concert, right? Yeah, and uh, Death is portrayed as like an actual Grim Reaper, you know, not just the a guy in like white makeup, which is kind of different. But yeah, it's uh, it's cool. I like it. If you've if you've never read it, I suggest checking it out. I love Aaron, I Evan Dorkin's uh, art style too. So, yeah, I don't think I have, but I've always wanted to because it has that stuff that they had to take out of the script for for like budget issues. Yeah, but yeah, I also think it's got a better soundtrack than the first movie. Um, mm-hmm. Like you said, it's got Pam Greer in it, and yeah, overall, I just—I uh, mean, yeah, I could watch this movie. Uh, 50 more times like i said I, I feel like i kind of it's one of those movies that i wore out 
for myself for a while where it's like after college i was like i gotta take a break from bill and ted it's a bogus journey because i've watched it too many times like i, I need to take like a 10-year break from it but now that i've i've watched it a couple times in the last couple of years uh i'm back on the train i'm like now i'm like anytime there's downtime I'm like man maybe i'll pop in bogus journey why not it's comfort food uh but yeah love it wonderful i'm glad to hear it um also one of my favorite jokes ever that's in this movie is at the end they're showing like um you know like news clippings and stuff of all the like cool stuff bill and ted did like bill and ted play the moon uh like bill and ted sell a billion albums blah 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 and one of them is uh that the grim reaper wins the nascar 500 and then the quote from him is i didn't know i could run that fast and that's (laughs) very (laughs) really really very funny to me um so on that note, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about the Hollywood Mortuary, so stick around. I've always loved horror movies. The creations of Pierce Jackson Dawn had a profound influence on my films. I remember seeing Pierce Jackson Dawn around the studio. He visited voodoo rituals, he went to crackpot scientists. You said, I'm dead, you get zombies. Bit arrivals from beyond the grave. Welcome back, Mr. Blasco. And it's all true. Every damn word of it. All right, welcome back to JFD, the third and final 
absolute cult classic, uh, undeniable, that we'll be reviewing on the show this week is Hollywood Mortuary from 1999. Uh, this is a movie that I came across in my late 20s. Um, at the time, you know, I was listening to JFD, kind of looking for weird movies to watch, spending a lot of time at Goodwill, and I came across this tape at a Goodwill. It was a self-made tape with a poorly printed cover, uh, but with some big bloody text saying Hollywood Mortuary and an intriguing photo of the star Randall Malone. So I picked it up immediately, and besides like a little hand-printed flyer on the inside, I couldn't find out too much about the movie online at the time. You know, like I, I saw it, it was on IMDb, and it, it had a couple of reviews there. And, I, you know, I saw that this guy, Ron Ford, made it and that, you know, that he had made a bunch of other low budget flicks, but that was about it, you know? And, and now almost 15 years later, I think that's more or less the same, still the same story. You know, I, I feel like this is a movie that you can find info about. There's definitely more info about this movie online now, I think, you know, and Ron Ford is still out there making stuff and, you know, po- posting on social media and stuff like that. But I feel like this movie still hasn't really seen the attention that it deserves, you know, because it's, in my mind, a a fun little shot on video flick that doesn't really feel like any other shot on video flick, uh, you know, with its weird focus on the golden age of Hollywood horrors. Um, But anyhow, our our story opens up with a naked snake dancing lady uh, who offers a famed monster makeup impresario a recipe for a makeup that will keep his clients looking eternally youthful. Uh, But there's a couple twists. Um, The recipe will require the blood of a recently murdered man, um, which, you know, uh, this makeup impresario is kind of bummed about. Uh, And if applied to a corpse, the makeup will raise the dead. Um, This makeup maven is named Pierce Jackson Don, and he's supposed to sort of be like a Jack Pierce type. Um, They make reference to him working on movies like The Walking Cadaver and Baron Vladimir. (laughs) which are supposed to be Frankenstein and Dracula. Um, and in this world of, of Hollywood Mortuary, um, those movies starred two guys named Pratt Borokov, who is a, a Boris Karloff type played by actor Tim Sullivan, and Janos Blasco, who is a, a Bella Lugosi type uh, played by the director Ron Ford himself. Uh, anyhow, through a crazy set of circumstances, makeup artist Pierce Jackson finds himself out of work in Hollywood, um, and comes to semi-accidentally murder Pratt Borokov. Uh, he then gets a job at the local mortuary as like a makeup artist for funerals, because that's how you get those jobs, I guess, is if you work in <laughs> movies, the funeral homes will come calling. Um, but then, of course, wouldn't you know it, this gives him the, the perfect opportunity, the perfect set of circumstances for him to use this zombie makeup cream from the naked snake lady in the first scene of the movie, uh, to resurrect Borokov, you know, hoping to have him star in the next great horror movie that will revive not only their two careers, but also the the public's interest in the horror genre. And that's, that's the story. Uh, but the, the format of the story, I think, is a little bit unusual in how it's told. You know, it's presented partially like a documentary, um, kind of like a documentary, like looking back at ho- Hollywood's golden age. Um, and so it has all these staged interviews, like these, these worked shoot interviews to use a pro pro wrestling term, uh, with real life, former screen, uh, screen legends, you know, screen legends like Margaret O'Brien, 
who maybe the you know the name doesn't ring a bell, but damn, does she have an impressive IMDb profile, Margaret O'Brien? Uh, she had roles as a child actress ranging all the way back to 1941. And it seems like she's still acting right now at the age of 86, which is kind of impressive. Uh, I guess her m- most well-known credit is as Judy Garland's younger sister, Tutti, in Meet Me in St. Louis. Uh, but it seems like for the past few decades, she's been featuring in exceedingly sh- schlocky fare. Uh, one of her more recent credits is as the grandmother in Halloween Pussy Trap Kill Kill which also stars <laughs> Richard Grieco, uh, which I guess is yeah. a weird thing to think of. You know, the next time you watch Meet Me in St. Louis, that that little girl would be starring in Halloween Pussy Trap Kill Kill. I saw that movie. That's a fine film. Oh, it, is it a, a Dustin Ferguson? No, it's not, but uh, it's way too it's big on- a production value for, for a movie. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, it's, it, it's all right. Though. It's like a Saw ripoff kind of a thing. Well, I hope you took note of screen legend Margaret O'Brien. Of course. Also, this movie, Hollywood Mortuary, features screen legends like Anita Page, who was a bona fide star in The Silent Age, receiving second billing on a string of big studio flicks in the 1920s. Uh, She retired from pictures almost completely by 1933, uh, then made a comeback in a 1996 thriller called Sunset After Dark. Alongside the aforementioned Margaret O'Brien, these two appeared together. Uh, that was produced by Wildcat Entertainment, who produced most of Ron Ford's movies. So I'm, I'm guessing that explains why the two of them would go from Sunset After Dark to appearing in this a couple years afterwards. Um, then Anita Page would go on to herself have her own run of playing grandmothers in schlocky movies like Witchcraft 11, Sisters in Blood, uh, before sadly passing on in 2008. But um, cool to see those two screen legends um, among the screen legends. Also Conrad Brooks, who you probably remember from the Ed Wood movies, or maybe you might remember him from sci-fi conventions where he sells glossy photographs of himself from the Ed Wood movies. Um, maybe you, you might be hyped to see David Dakota in this, a man who has a name that I never feel fully confident pronouncing, but he's one of those screen legends in this. So they interview. I was, I actually was very excited to see him in this. I figured you would be. I figured there was one person out there who, who would be hyped on that. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, you know, they intercut all these interview segments, you know, about the story that we're watching with the actual story. Um, and the story itself, obviously, is, I think, very much inspired by that mid-90s resurgence of interest in Ed Wood um, that we got, you know, thanks to a combination of Rhino video reissues of the Ed Wood movies and, of course, also of Tim, Tim Burton's movie, you know, certainly had a big impact. Um, and so what we end up with here is kind of in a lot of ways, sort of like that lost skeleton of Cadavra movie where it's like very much an homage to, you know, strictly black and white 1950s horror sci-fi movies. But unlike the lost skeleton of Cadavra, this movie's fun. Uh, I, I like this one, uh, you know, which I think the fun of this movie should be apparent uh, in the part when Pratt Borokov says to Janos Blasco, uh, that he should respect his hairy British nuts. <laughs> Dude, I laughed so hard at that. He doesn't say it to him. He says it while he's reading his obituary. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it's it's a classy, classy maneuver from Pratt Borokov. Um, but the highlight of the movie for me is not, in fact, Pratt Borokov or Janos Blasco. It's Randall Malone as Jackson Pierce Don, a role of a lifetime 
you know, I, 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 I mean, I, sure. Is it fair to say that a good chunk of my enjoyment of this guy is his resemblance to Otho from Beetlejuice? Yes, of course that is fair. Um, you know, I, everybody knows I'm lifelong in the tank for Otho. But I also think that this actor uh, brings some fun touches of his own uh, to this character. And and the guy just gets so much done with his eyeballs that I, I feel like you could even just black out the rest of the screen and still be entertained by his performance just with those eyes. I mean, they're darting around in that scene where the naked snake lady's trying to pawn off makeup on him. Um, he's great in those moments where he's talking to himself in the mirror and, you know, like the mirror is kind of like a an evil version of him that's for some reason in color while, the you know, most of the rest of the movie is in black and white, uh, which is kind of an interesting touch from Ron, Ron Ford that I kind of liked, I guess. Well, the um, other thing, the other thing they do like that is all the gore scenes, like whenever the like actual violence happens or there's blood. Yeah. Those are all in color very briefly to highlight, I guess, the gore. Which I think... I think the reason they did that is if you look at the DVD release of this on the back and and on the front and everywhere on the cover, they're very careful to show you no black and white footage. And so the back is just all of the gore shots in color. And you would totally think that this was a color movie, uh, which, you know, I think that's how they, they sell this. Probably to most people don't want to buy a black and white shot on video movie, you know, so I get it, I guess. But uh, interesting, you know, technical choices uh, throughout this for an SOV. But the, like I said, the best technical choice was casting this guy, this Randall Malone. He's fucking awesome. And this is the kind of movie where I think it starts off and you're like, I think I know what this is. And it seems like it's going to be kind of lame. And then it builds, at least for me, you know, as the actual story kind of unfolds. And, um, you know, this makeup artist is getting more and more uh, you know, embroiled in, in this mess that he's created for himself. Like I thought this motherfucker is like giving a great performance in this movie that doesn't even necessarily maybe deserve it. Um, but that's not fair because, because this is a very fun, uh, movie. It's, it's a fun homage to, you know, those fifties horror sci-fi flicks, you know, and it's, there are some surprising elements of gore that are pretty decent. I'm well, I'm pretty decent as maybe stretching it, but, but fun, um, there's also a fun scene in this where there's like a bad stand-up comedy routine happening at like a sock hop dance that's inside of a Chinese food restaurant. It's very strange, but that's in this. <laughs> yeah, they uh, were pretty hard up for interiors in this. There's a scene that's supposed to take place at a diner that's clearly just somebody's like breakfast nook in their house. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it was certainly this was a it's it's a barely a step up from a backyard production, you know, it's very bare bones, but I do think that the heart is there. Uh, there is also a fairly jacked up little stinger moment at the very end of the credits. So don't miss that if you're into jacked up stinger moments, I guess. Um, anyhow, you can find this movie pretty easily online for sale. I don't think it's on YouTube at the moment. But if you look around, you could probably find an illegal copy. But it's cheap on DVD and, and VHS. I think you can actually still buy both of them from the director for 10 or 15 bucks or so. And I suggest giving it a shot because uh, this is a fun one. Actually, I'm, I'm seeing now that there is a novelization of this movie that came out last year in 2022 that I'm going to have to buy now, you know, because who, who knows how long that thing's going to be in print for. 
Uh, sadly, this never got a sequel or anything, uh, which is sad because I, I would watch like a whole series of these. I, I don't know why, you know, Witchboard gets 11 plus movies and we only get one of these. That's kind of jacked up. But what did you guys think about Hollywood Mortuary? Yeah, well, so going into this, I, like most people, had no idea of anything about this movie, didn't know what it was going to be. And when it started, I was like, oh, no, like this is some shot on video nonsense. And it's in black and white. And like, what is this? Like, I don't know. I was very disheartened. I was like, "Uh oh, this is going to be bad. But uh, as the movie went on, like you, I was super charmed by, uh, like you said, all the performances really um, for a low budget shot on video. It's got some actually really um, fun performances, but indeed uh, Randall Malone as Pierce Jackson Don is the star of the show. It's very over the top, very flamboyant, um, but yeah, he's great. But the, the two other guys, the guys that play the Boris Karloff and the uh, Bella Lugosi characters, Tim Sullivan and Ron Ford himself are also very good. Uh, you know, so, and most of the people in this are, are, like I said, for a low budget shot on video are, are at the very least really going for it. You know, they might not be the best actors, but they're really hamming it up, chewing up the scenery. And for a movie like this, it works. Um, and the whole kind of uh, structure of kind of splicing between interviews with uh, some real life actors and directors and, you know, making this about a, you know, 1940s era rivalry between, the, you know, the Boris Karloff and uh, Bela Lugosi essentially, but just, you know, with different characters. Uh, and, and then this makeup guy, you know, feeling like he's, no longer wanted in Hollywood and, you know, looking to do whatever it takes to get ahead. Uh, and then mixing that like homage to like the classic monster movies with the, you know, kind of gritty, uh, over the top, uh, splatter effects you'd expect from a shot on video slasher movie. It actually works really well. Like it, it, it sounds weird on paper, but the way it's put together uh, it's actually really clever, and I, I think they pulled it off very well. I mean, it like you said, it is very noticeably low budget. There's a lot of um, just cheap ass looking sets, cheap ass costuming, uh, just not the best kind of camera work. It, it, again, it's very low budget, and you should know that going in. But if you like low budget shot on video stuff. I think this one is actually kind of a cut above the pack of a lot of the shot on video stuff we've watched because it is structured in a way that is, I think, uh, you know, unique and amusing. And there's more to it than just gratuitous slashing. There's an actual story. There's some history. There's, you know, some spoofing and lampooning of that history. And overall just works really well. And I found myself, you know, audibly laughing at a couple points in this, which I really wasn't expecting to do with this movie when I first started it. Uh, just the bickering back and forth uh, between the Karloff and, and Lugosi character is great. Like you mentioned, just the insults that they hurl at each other, uh, I think is very funny. And the way they do it is, is very good. I like the dude that, uh, that like the timid guy with the, the camera that's interviewing both guys at the beginning of the movie and shows up 
later in the movie to kind of capture the horrific climax of this film yeah. on tape. Uh, I like him a lot too. He, I think he's really funny the way he's very timid and ask kind of silly questions. And um, I don't know. I think he's really fun. Uh, and this whole movie is fun. I, I think they really did a good job capturing the, the aesthetic of a campy 1940s black and white movie on a very low budget and shooting it on video. And yeah, I think the real stars of the show, like you said, are the performers, but particularly Randall Malone. Cause I think those, everybody in this, uh, you know, knows exactly what type of movie they're making and, and really goes for it. And I think that pays off. So overall I went into this with very low expectations, but, uh, came out pleasantly surprised. I thought this was a lot of fun. Very nice. Will we be three for three? Only time will tell. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, like you, well, I'll just tell you now, I guess. Um, <laughs> like you guys, uh, <laughs> I was pretty bummed uh, at the beginning because like, it, it's a rocky start, you know. Uh, outside of David Dakota showing up, uh, famed director of, of uh, the very best Puppet Master movie. Um. And many other things. Um, outside of that, like, yeah, it's it's a rough start. Uh, every like, there's a lot of just hollering, you know, like dudes are just yelling at each other. And you know, you guys know how much I hate movies where people just holler <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> um, so I was like, oh my god, this is gonna be this is gonna be a bummer. Uh, I did take delight in the fact that, uh, oh, what's his face? The main guy. What's his name? You're talking about Randall Malone. Randall Malone. He he looks exactly like um Jello Biafra in a fat suit. <laughs> like there's this scene okay. in uh, the the Guar movie Skullhead Face where Jello Biafra shows up and he's wearing this fat suit. Looks exactly like this guy. It's uncanny. You didn't feel my, my uh Otho comparison? Glenn Shaddix, I think the actor's name was. That's a pretty good one too. But I think if you if you look up Jello Biafra from Skullhead Face, I think you might might be inclined to agree that this this looks a little bit more more similar. Um, uh, I, I do want to say, Randall Malone, I I, th- I had this thought while watching this movie. He he wears makeup in this. Uh, they even like call attention to it at the beginning, and he's very like flamboyant and sassy. And I was like, man, this dude would make an awesome drag queen. I don't know if Randall Malone ever <laughs> dabbled in, in drag, but. Uh, if so, I think he would have would have slayed it. Yeah, yeah. It's in his in his letterbox photo, he's it's like a picture of him not in a movie, like just hanging out, and he's wearing makeup then too. So I guess maybe it's possible, or maybe he just likes makeup. I don't know. I don't want to put stuff on him that isn't there. But but yeah, uh, he is a man that likes makeup apparently. Um, and who wouldn't? I guess. But uh, but yeah, so I was. For like the first half hour of this, I was like, man, this fucking movie sucks. I'm I'm very pumped out to be watching this, (laughs) especially on weeks where me and Kevin uh, understood the assignment, as the kids say, and we picked bangers, (laughs) classic bangers. Um, But it did start to grow on me. Once we get voodoo involved, I I perked up like the uh, Vince McMahon meme where I perked up a little bit. Uh, And then people are being brought back from the dead. And then, like, there's, you know, monsters are going to parties, and then people are getting torn apart. Um, people who were just supposed to be scared, they even they do the classic joke where, like, the guy, he's like, 
monsters. You know, you weren't supposed to kill this guy. You were supposed to just scare him. And then they go, oh, well, he looked pretty scared to me. That's a classic joke. I love it. Um, so, so, yeah. So by the end of it, I was like, I was into it. I was into it. It won me over. Um, and it's, you know, like you guys said, it's like a, a novel concept. Usually when somebody does a shot on video horror movie, you know, they're just in their backyard throwing blood on stuff and doing a, like zombies or whatever. And they're not really very ambitious. Um, so to do a shot on video movie, that's a period piece of all things. Um, I think is really interesting, very ambitious. Uh, so I like that aspect of it. And then to kind of, yeah, combine old Hollywood with monsters, with real monsters, like the, you know, the universal monster era with actual monsters, I think is a fun conceit as well. Um, so yeah, so I, I had fun with this. I, I think this is the kind of director that I'm going to watch uh, his entire filmography while painting <laughs> him going forward. So I, I like this. Yeah, I, I think Ron Ford has probably made about just shy of 40 flicks by now. And, and they're, you know, they're mostly probably on this budget level, I would guess. They're probably mostly on this running time level, I guess, you know, about 75 to 90 minutes at the, at the high end. But that, I mean, that might be just what the doctor ordered in terms of painting your little Warhammers. Yeah, uh, about half of his movies on Letterboxd don't even have poster art, and that's that's brilliant. That's, that's what I look. Yeah. That's what I look for in a director. Well, if you are out there and and this sound appealing to you, and and honestly, I'm a little bit surprised, thankful, glad, because I, I was hoping that you guys would like this. Like, you know, this has been kind of in my back pocket for a while as you know a movie that I wanted to bring to the show. Um, wasn't fully sure that you both would, would like it, but it seems like, you know, even alongside Killer Tomatoes and Bill and Ted, Hollywood Mortuary held its own. So if you're out there and, and you know, this sounds interesting to you, I say go look it up. This, this movie needs more fans. You know, it's everybody knows about the Bill and the, and the Ted. I don't think enough people know about uh, this flick. So uh, if it sounded cool, or maybe if you liked Babylon, and, you know, you, you wanted some other sordid tale of old Hollywood, uh, you know, give this a shot. It's it's I think you'd probably have time for two, two more movies from Ron Ford after this and still it would probably be shorter than Babylon. So uh, I think that about wraps it up for Hollywood Mortuary. We will take a quick break. And when we come back, um, we're, we're going to revive the dead with the help of some de-aging creams. Stick around. That wraps it up for the junk fight, Schlitzie. Thanks everybody for listening to the Schlitzie. Uh, next week we're going to be back. We got Patreon picked movies next week. We're going to be talking about Raiders of Atlantis, picked by Justin Siesta, starring my man Julian Sands. I, I hope to find him. Picked by Kevin and Excalibur, picked by Mr. Brian. Uh, so that'll be a fun episode. In the meantime, you can give us a call at 347-746-JUNK, 347-746-5865. Let us know how you're doing. You know? Uh, 
tell Kevin happy birthday. His birthday's in a couple hours. Uh, wish him a happy semi-retirement. Uh, talk about what Bill and Ted movie you like the best. Whatever you want, you know. Also, you can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash junkfooddinner. Uh, we recently posted on there and on the Patreon, patreon.com slash junkfooddinner. Uh the the updates about the show and what's going to happen uh in the future so i'm not going to tell you now <laughs> go to the website go to the facebook and find out go to junkfooddinner.com and find out uh you can read all about it um spoiler alert recrab is permanent that's really the big the big news recrab is going to be on every episode <laughs> um so send us an email as well, jftpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, find us in the Discord. We're in there chatting, having fun, uh, all that kind of stuff. So until next week, this is Parker for Kevin and Sean saying thanks for having fun. Bye.